everybody, and welcome to the Smorgasbord. I'm Tom Shapira, and with me as always... Hello, I'm Sean Edry. You'll have to respect my friends, for although their lipstick may be thick and smeared, and their clothing thin, they all hide dreams in their suit coat pockets. Dignified dreams. Makes sense, makes sense. This is a comic book podcast brought to you by the fine folks at Seekport, the best online and unusual source for comic books, news, reviews, and critiques. Buy their books, read their articles, watch their movies. And remember, Sequart is on Patreon, supports smart criticism in comics. This is our 51st episode, following yes. the anniversary, as it were. Yeah, it was yeah. an anniversary. Yeah. And we have not renumbered, and we have not raised the price. <laughs> not yet. Holding the line at zero, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> at 0.00. Shall we go on straight to the news? There's been many, many news while we were talking, you know, overall in the last episodes. Sure, so let's start with... Comics? With actual comics comics? Actual comics, let's go for okay, it. Okay, so as sensationalist headlines everywhere announce, Alan Moore retires from comics forever! And then in tinier print, after he finishes the three projects that he's working on right now, and even then he's not retiring, he's just saying that maybe he'll retire, he'll probably want to write more books and do movies, but maybe he'll make more comics, it doesn't guarantee anything. Well, this is a subject of some contention between us, and I figured we should hash it out a little bit. I don't think it's any secret to our listeners that of the two of us, I tend to be a little more iconoclastic in the sense that my approach to people like more tends to default to, you know, what have you done for me lately? Mm. I can acknowledge that Alan Moore has written some of the most powerful, most intelligent, most transformative works in the medium, and at the same time point out that it's been 10 years and change since he's done anything that interested me. In the slightest. Yeah, fair is fair. Even though I should announce that I have actually bought Jerusalem, his 1,200-page epic novel, which, oh does my not, God. which does not take place in Jerusalem. I'm going abroad soon, so I'll have like a week or so of just doing anything but reading. So I guess that'll be that. <laughs> Good luck with that is yeah. all I can say. If my brand survives, I'll actually bring back a review, I guess. That would be actually really interesting. <laughs> uh, because I'm certainly not going to read oh, it. Oh, no, no, no. The thing is... You know, 10 years ago, the news that Alan Moore would be leaving comics would have crushed me. But to be honest, after Neonomicon and Lost Girls and Crossed and League of Impenetrable References, honestly, if you want to go, go. Like, there's nothing that I can say about that that would be like, oh, isn't it a shame? Because he hasn't been creating on the same level that he used to for a really long time. And that's not... That's not saying anything about Alan Moore as a person. You know, we joke about him being like the old man from Snake Mountain, but he seems like a perfectly decent human being. He looks like a good person, right? From yeah. From everything we hear about him, he's just... No one ever said anything bad about him, like, as a person. But I haven't supported him as a creator for such a long time now that it's like, well, via con glycon, I yeah, guess. Yeah, which is fine. You know, even though I like his current work more than you do, and... Not to make any mistake, I don't think that anything he's done in the last 10 years or so, like you said, is half as good as his prime. You know, I enjoyed Neonomicon more than you do, more than, I guess, most people who actually bothered to read it did. But I do acknowledge the fact that it's so cold. It's like reptile cold work, which appeals to my intellectual curiosity of like, oh, this is what he thinks about, about Lovecraft. That's a very interesting article. But he's, for some reason, decided to present it in comic book form. Well, no, it's also the sense that, like, his interpretation of Lovecraft in that issue is, let's have a fish gang rape. Well, we won't review Neonomicon here or, I think, God, anywhere. No. 
But, you know, the intellectual fire is there, but the humanity seems to have withered off, as it were, in the comic yeah. form. He's, he's more interested in ideas than in people now. He is the Dr. Manhattan of issues one through nine. Well, it's also that he, the concepts that he chooses to explore in his recent works are really only of interest to him. And I guess, like, that's obviously his prerogative as a creator. Oh, yeah. But it's also saying something that they tend to be really, really alienating. And so, you know, when we talk about Alan Moore's legacy, my perspective has always been he should have retired 10 years ago so that people could remember him for really the great works and not have to quantify it by saying, you know, oh, I loved Alan Moore until about the turn of the century. And then it's just... I think Alan Moore earned the right to write whatever he wants at this point. And if it's bad, I'll say it's bad and you'll say it's bad. And many people will say it's awful, it's bad and it's fine. You know, he, he earned the right to do crap. Or even if he thinks that his crap is gold. What annoys me about the news is that, again, he's not... They made it into this big thing of Alan Moore leaves comics forever, and he's not. He has three ongoing projects at the moment because he still has at least one more League of Extraordinary Gentlemen graphic novel waiting. Sure, but at the pace that he does those, who actually believes that he's going to get it done? They're on time, and Providence came out almost monthly, I think. The first issue was in mid-2015, and he's already up to issue 10 or so, so it's on time. And uh, Avatar... Uh, anthology thing uh, cinema, that cross thing yeah no 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 cinema purgatory or something that he's part of you know it's coming on time monthly so Alan Moore is on time right now at least so maybe when it's all finished he won't make a comic again but as he said maybe I will if something it piques my interest I'll, I'll write it as a comic book sure I'm just so annoyed by people you know jumping at the fence to say me first me first Alan Moore leaves comics forever when no Alan Moore just says I'll probably do a book next or a movie. The irony, I think, is just that like people want him to retire from comics because <laughs> he's kind of embarrassing himself at this point. Like nobody wants him to turn into Frank Miller. Is the thing? No, no, he's not. I don't think that's gonna happen because Frank Miller's transformation wasn't just in the comic that he's made, but with Frank Miller as a public persona. And you, sure. And you get the sense that if Frank Miller from the 1980s met Frank Miller from 2011, they would fight it out. I'm sure, but there's a concept here and a problem, especially in this industry, of, you know, veterans outstaying their welcome, so to speak. You look at someone like Chris Claremont, right, who at one time was considered one of the top writers at Marvel, right, someone who created a team that unfortunately has declined in recent years due to legal problems, but, you know, the man's work is technically unimpeachable until you get to the point where the obsession with mind control and slavery and dominatrix and BDSM just overtakes everything that he does. So there is some wisdom, I think, in the idea of getting off the stage before you're thrown off. Well, but how can they? Because this industry does not treat people even in their prime well. It's not like, well, we've made all our best work when we were 20 to 50, and now we can live on retirement funds because they can't. Yeah. Most of them can't. You can't just tell them, you know leave off your residues because they won't. Even Alan Moore, you know, at his prime, needed to ask people for help, for money, when he was publishing from hell because he couldn't afford it. And you would think at the time, you know, it was post-Watchman Alan Moore, he could have done anything. No, he couldn't. And no, they can't. And so saying to people, just retire for me to think good of you, I, I don't like it. If, again, if Alan Moore publishes crap, if Chris Claremont publishes crap, I'll just write a review and say, well, it's crap and it's not as good as it used to be, but I won't say you have to retire just for me to have this pristine memory of you, because I don't well, like... Well, no, not I for don't... our sakes. For their sakes, not ours. I think Alan Moore's sakes is fine in his own mind, where 
which is where he lives. I'll admit that I'm contradicting myself on some level here because I have always said in the past that people like Claremont and people, you know, like the old classics, the old vets should still get work. But the problem is that when they do get work, it tends to be very, very contentious. Some people seem to age gracefully in terms of their writing and some people don't, you know, and some people were very good for a very short while and just lost it almost completely. Yeah. We, we talked about Brian Bendis a lot and we'll tie to one of our next bit of news but that was a guy when he just when he just started out in mentor when he got his first work for Marvel and Image when he did Powers and Daredevil people were like oh my god this is brilliant this is the greatest thing ever and now 10 15 years later the guy is what what 50 something like that something like that in terms of reviews most of his work gets shut down quickly he gets the readers his comics yeah. bringing a lot of readers but review wise this is a guy who was the most adored american writer of the early 2000s who's now that guy who does these annoying Marvel events that won't go away, right? Yeah, but Bendis' problem is different, I think. Like, in his case, it's very clearly to this day, right? It's something that you see very obviously. In his case, it was just like he happened to stumble into a company that treated him as basically like the man that could do no wrong. We know that for many, many years, Bendis worked at Marvel without editorial oversight, which is how stuff like Avengers Disassembled happened. And, you know, when someone is just telling you yes, 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 yes all the time, you don't feel any particular need to work on your shortcomings, and your shortcomings get worse. So that's different, though. Like, comparing more to Bendis on that level doesn't even make sense to me because Bendis had certain strengths, to this day, though, it's still the same shtick, right? He'll still do the same repetitive panels. He hasn't evolved his craft very much. Not at all. Mm. Moore, you could certainly say, went through some kind of evolution, and I'm talking before the fish rape, right? Like, he had his whole experimental phase with Promethea, he had Top Ten, he had Tom Strong. At some point after that, it turned into, you know, Lost Girls, and you can see, I think, the transformation very clearly in League of Extraordinary Gentlemen in the sense that... Oh, yeah, that... It's a parlor game masquerading as a story. It started out being, isn't it clever the way that he's integrating all of these Victorian references? And then it just sort of turned into him showing off, look at how much Victorian trivia I know. Look at my library, yeah. Yeah. And that is less interesting for readers. Because I remember reading uh, The Black Dossier, was it? The third yeah, one? And thinking, that was the one this where is like... the most intellectually amazing thing I've read in a long while and I don't care. Yeah, I just, it's amazing craft. And Kevin O'Neill, you know, God bless his hands, did such an amazing craft work there in all the different styles and variations, but I just couldn't care about anything. Exactly. You don't care. Like, how can you care? If the whole purpose of the Black Dossier and the League of Extraordinary Projects that came up afterwards was just Alan Moore showing off. And I'm like, okay, it's the same with Jerusalem, by the way. The whole hype around Jerusalem was the fact that it's this huge book that has all of these pages and a million words and it comes in slipcase and it's hardcover. And I'm like, fantastic. Not one word of that tells me anything about the story. And I have a feeling that if I read this, I'll say intellectually interesting leaves me cold as hell. I do not care. Well, I guess we'll see about that. Speaking of books, mm -hmm. I have a bit of schadenfreude to share with you, Tom. You know how I love schadenfreude. Yes, you do. So, the Omega Men trade came out recently. Oh, right. Tom right. King's Omega Men trade. It's number four, as of the time of recording, it's number four on the New York Times bestsellers list. This book is still canceled, by the way. 
It should be since the story is over, as far as I'm concerned. You and I both know that that has never stopped anyone from calling up the writer and being like, you want some more? Do you really want before Omega Men? No, no, I want after Omega Men, because it ended on a open note. Watchmen ended on an open note. Well, no, and hang at, on. At, at, at the time, they were thinking more, and Gibbons were talking about doing a sequel before the whole, you know, DC pulling the rung on their knees, as it were. As far as I'm concerned, Omega Men is a perfect 12 issues, standalone story, leave it be. I don't even want to read Tom King's sequel to it. If, if he Okay, so that's where we disagree on this. Because if Tom King were to come back and say, I have more to tell. And, and this, I think, is also the difference with, you know, whatever Moore and Gibbons may have discussed. Like, if before Watchmen had actually been written by Alan Moore... It would have changed the way that we perceive that project. Yeah, but again, that was 2006, Alan Moore. Sure. So think hard about what sure, version sure. you no, want to I'm read saying it like, or not. Even if before Watchmen had come out the year after Watchmen, mm. for argument's purpose, right? Like, if the creators want to come back and do more... I mean, we're seeing this with Steve Orlando now. Midnighter was canceled. He's doing Midnighter on Apollo now. And yeah. that's fine. So the issue here is really going back to what we talked about in our last episode's roundtable, right? The whole... All of the different factors that influence publication and cancellation, single sales, trade sales, digital sales. I just find it absurd. This trade paperback is outselling novelists with established reputations and fan bases. And yet it was one of DC's lowest selling titles in the direct market to the point where Didio tried to pull the plug and had to be shamed to get back in line. And in spite of this success and in spite of the fact that Tom King is exclusive at DC... No one has come to him and been like, okay, clearly this book is making more waves than we thought it would. Come do some more. I don't think he wants to. He's doing the same, not the same story, but the same type of story and ideas and experimentation with Sheriff of Babylon, which also deals with very similar subjects, only without the veneer of science fiction on it. I don't think he needs to. I don't think he wants to. And after all, the man is, he's writing, what, three books right now? He has Vision. He has Sheriff of Babylon and his Batman run. Vision is ending next month. I don't think it's relevant. They're talking about doing another one as far as I know, but maybe I'm wrong. He's exclusive to DC. The way his comics are written, it's obviously not one of those quick, you know, I'll write it in two days. I think he's very much into the scripting and over-scripting and doing it another go. So I don't think he can do more than three series a month or at least without hurting his craft work. Well, this is all hypothetical. All I'm saying is it astonishes me that there have been no repercussions. There hasn't been any word from DC about the fact that they categorize DCU as a whole as a failure. And yet the New York Times bestseller list and this book is number four. Well, on the graphic novel section. I mean, that's still saying something, though. It's a f- level of success that, quite frankly... It's a proof of what we said over the last episode in which we claimed that it was obvious from the first arc, from the first six issues when they first announced that it's canceled cancellation, as it were, that this was going to be a big thing. You could see it working perfectly on the shelf as a book. But at the same time, I think that what makes it work perfectly is the fact that it's, it is open and closed. I don't need Omega Man to the sequel. If Tom King and uh, who? Baganda? I forget. Baganda, I think. Uh, if they want to do a sequel, fine. But only if they want to because they have an interesting story to tell with these characters in this setting. Not because, well, it was a success, let's milk the cow. This cow is fine. Leave it as it were. And I'm telling it as a guy who worked at a cow farm as a child. <laughs> Literally. Only for one day because it's gross and disgusting. 
don't over milk a cow. It's not healthy. I don't think that anybody wants to see Tom King just let DC squeeze every ounce of creativity out of him and turn him into a drone. I don't think that's what anyone's looking for. All I'm saying is the fact that this book has achieved something that DC doesn't normally achieve, right? You don't normally see in the graphic novel section of a bestseller list that is national. You don't normally see DC trades that are like Omega Men at the top. A new writer on a, on a, on right. a new prop, well, not new, but an unknown property. It raises questions about, you know, again, like going back to our discussion, the whole, what is it that DC classifies as a success versus what they consider a failure and whether it actually is a failure? Well, the big question I think right now is, will it have a long tail? Because if it's just on the bestseller list for a month or two and then disappears forever, it's nothing. If this actually becomes an evergreen, as I predicted it will be, then, you know, somebody needs to do a big rethinking. Well, I think they need to do a big rethinking anyway, but they won't. They won't. Yeah. This is not an administration that is known for careful consideration and, you know, adjusting to past mistakes. They tend to double down. Now, speaking of canceling work early, but adding yeah. the shouting at the readers, just as we were recording uh, last month and talking about Nighthawk by David yes. Walker and Ramon Villalobos is a really good book, but it sells terrible, so it's probably going to get canceled. It was canceled after five issues, which is the Marvel way, I guess. Weird World was also canceled after five issues, which means they've made the decision to cancel it at the latest after the second issue came out, at the earliest, once the orders for book one were in from Diamond. Well, I don't know if we can say that with any degree of certainty. It's possible that there were scripts that were written like for issue six and onward and Marvel just decided not to publish them. We don't know. Like there hasn't been... It was canceled very early on, which is something Marvel had done before. Also something that Marvel had done before, some creators tend to come out and yell at the readers and like point their fingers at them. This wouldn't have happened if you would have ordered a book more. And this time it was Brian Bendis, not the actual creators of the book. (laughs) David, David Walker made it clear when he said, Marvel took a big risk with this book. We knew that it would piss people off, and many people who buy superhero stuff don't want to read a book about, you know, cops brutalizing black people, which was the main subject for Nighthawk. Mm-hmm. So the fact that it was canceled was sad to them, they said, but not a big surprise. Well, there's also the fact that Nighthawk, I mean... The third spinoff from Squadron Supreme, which itself sells absolutely nothing. Right, and since when were Squadron Supreme a big seller for Marvel? Well, it, from 1986 to 1987, and that's it, I'd say? Yeah. The Roy Thomas one, was it? The, and the gag at the time was that they were Marvel's answer to the yeah. Justice League. So, I mean, even then, it's like you're talking about a riff of a riff of a riff here. Yeah. It's unfortunate, because certainly Marvel could have used more of what Nighthawk was bringing to the table. It wasn't a perfect book, but it was, at the very least, an interesting book, and a book that was doing something that most Marvel books wouldn't dream of doing. Exactly. And Villa Lobos' art was amazing. That guy is a star, as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, and David Walker's an excellent writer. So Brian Bendis went online and sort of poo-pooed at the fans for not ordering enough and saying, well, if you pre-order more, this wouldn't happen to your favorite books, which made uh, Jude Terror of the Outdoorsers go on a spree on oh an internet war, war rally. Tom, when I tell you, I was channeling Shirley from Community, reading that column, being like, orgasmically delicious. 
I did want to bring this up just as a shout out to him because oh my god, Jude Terra wrote an op-ed piece. Well, he wrote the op-ed piece and then it was the, the um, sequel, yeah. This piece, basically he wrote this very detailed, uh, very well-considered argument that was based off of Bendis's blaming the fans for not pre-ordering. One of the things that's interesting to me is that I agreed with what a lot of what he had to say, but as many commenters in other websites and blogs and podcasts pointed out, a lot of the history that he presented was so... It does not matter. And let me, okay, so let me, let me get into this. The name of the column was Die Industry Die, and in brackets, why letting comics fail is the real only way to save the industry. Now, it's a long essay. I strongly recommend that people should go and read it. Terror's point was as follows. He says, okay, the direct market was formed as a result of A, B, C, and D. This was the thing, by the way, that his critics argued against was like, oh, you got the history wrong. It doesn't matter, Which though. he did. He did. I'm not saying that he didn't. And in fact, he then posted a rebuttal saying that, yes, he did screw up some of the facts. It doesn't matter, though. The historical argument of why the direct market exists has absolutely nothing to do with the points that he was making, which was, first of all, screw Bendis for putting the blame for failed books on the readers. And he said this very clearly. He said, we don't work for Marvel. It is not our job as consumers to buy the books in the way that is the most convenient for the people who are making them. And this is something that I have said very, very often on this show, and I know that sometimes you disagree with me on that point. But really, it is not our obligation to do things that are convenient for the publisher. No, 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 no. I, do, I never argue with it. I'm saying that sometimes I choose to, if I really love a book or a creator, to support sure. them in a way that they say, well, it's more comfortable to us if you buy it and pre-order it monthly, but I only do it for writers, artists, whatever, whose work I appreciate. I certainly don't do it for a publisher. Even a publisher whose work I usually admire, like Image, I won't be like, oh, Image asked me to do something, I'll do it, because that's the big problem, right, with the comic market, that a lot of the readers grew up in this idea that Marvel and DC are the family, which they're not. These companies will never love you back. Yep. The thing that you're saying about, like, sometimes you pre-order for artists that you want to support is absolutely legitimate. What Tara was talking about, though, was the fact that Brian Michael Bendis had the nerve to get up on Twitter and essentially blame the readers for a book that Marvel failed to promote, failed to highlight, failed to do anything with that would have made it a more successful title. Like, how dare you, as a writer for Marvel, a company that squeezes Every possible dime out of its readers. One of the biggest writers for Marvel, you're not just... He's Brian Bendis, he's not just a nobody. If he wanted to wake people up to the glory that he is Nighthawk, he could have written a column, he could have made the character a guest appearance in one of his many books, he could have, you know, talked about on Twitter, oh, by the way, you should probably really read Nighthawk all the time and not wait for the cancellation. Or he could have talked to his one of his bosses and say... By the way, we should give this book a try because when you're Brian Bendis, again, one of the biggest writers in Marvel, you can use your influence. Yeah. Not at the readers. How dare you point to the readers? It is not the readers' fault. Let me quote Terror. I have a power quote here, and it's a bit crude, for which I apologize, but it does really sell the okay. just the anger that this... Just as long as you say TM, uh, Jude Terror, Outhousers at the end. The following is the quote of Jude Terror, and I quote... 
The next time some Uncle Fester-looking blowhard motherfucker deeply entrenched in the comics establishment lectures you on Twitter about how it's your responsibility to keep the comics you love afloat, politely let him know that it is in fact Marvel's job to sell comics, not yours. And for the past 20 years, they've been doing an absolutely awful job of it, regardless of their increasing profit margin. Here endeth the lesson, Tom. That is the thing. That it is not, and it has never been the responsibility of the fan, of the reader, to do Marvel's job for them and do PR. Like, why aren't you talking about this book online? Because Marvel is drowning us out with Secret Wars and Civil War II and Death of X and Death of Spidey and Death of This and This and What do you want from us? Our job has always been to purchase whatever books we want in the way that is most convenient to us, whenever we feel like it. And if it's a horrible thing to say, what I'm about to say now, and it is unfortunate, and I I do feel bad for the creators who get screwed over because of this system, but at the end of the day, if books like Nighthawk are cancelled because the direct market cannot function without us functioning as PR wage slaves for Marvel and DC, then let them be cancelled. Let the books die. They may be good. They may be brilliant. I'm still pissed off about egos getting canceled. I am. But if that is the environment, if that is the situation, then we just need to let the whole thing die. It needs to wither and die and have something new come up because this isn't working. Now, this is the point where I disagree. I don't want the direct market to die. I think with all the nostalgia people had for the time where comics sold, you know, a million copies a week for... I don't know, your Jimmy Olsen Superman Pals number one. Most of these comics were terrible. And the direct market, I think, brought us all of the comics that I like right now, all the sagas and shoes and what have you, could not exist without the direct market functioning as brokenly as it is. I think it's crap, but it's the crap that you put on your flowers and allow beautiful things to grow for a degree. What I would say is this, especially when it comes from Marvel or DC, If you want a book to succeed, you can allow yourself a few more issues. Your Marvel Comics, owned by Disney, if you want to invest in something, you can allow it to yourself. It's not like, I don't know, Alternative Press or Fantagraphics where, you know, every penny counts. It's Marvel. They can allow it for themselves. If they really believed in the book, they would say, well, it's a low seller, but I think we can make it work on the trade, just as, you know, Omega Man did. And we'll give it five more issues, and we'll allow the creator some room, and we'll pull up our huge publicity machines, which will hopefully turn, I don't know, Champions number one is tracking to be a huge seller simply because they pushed it hard enough, right? No, it's tracking as a huge seller because they put it in uh, Loot Crate or something. Well, why didn't you do that with Nighthawk? That will be fine for the first issue boost. These people will not be coming back for issue two. That's the problem. You know, that's that's part of the issue is the fact that we're making assumptions here that Marvel have access to Disney resources. Tom, they're selling comics 24 pages, $4.99. Clearly something is going wrong there. Okay? Sean, if you could sell people a small project for a huge profit margin and ask them to pay $5 for it on a monthly basis, wouldn't you? If you went to Netflix and you told them, I found a model in which people pay you $4 for every episode of a TV show they want to watch. Wouldn't you be like, oh my god, I can take all their money while producing the exact same amount of content? Why not? Why not? Because there are 
cheaper alternatives out there. And if you can't compete with those prices and you can't compete with their content, then this is all, you know, the, the model that you're proposing here is short-term benefit only. It doesn't last. You're asking somebody at Marvel Management to think long-term and Sean, that's not, that's not gonna happen. I'm asking them to be realistic. Look, the fact that they are in crisis mode is evident from the fact that you know, they haven't even finished their current mega event. They've got four more coming. And like $67 worth of comics per event. Isn't DC's responsible for crisis? I don't know. It's not so much a crisis as this is the way Marvel is right now, right? Event to event. That's it. There is no non-event Marvel, except for Squirrel Girl, I assume. But that is that is the consequence. It's the outcome of a certain situation that they're in. I don't believe that Disney is giving them like all the money in the world. No, no, no. Obviously. But I'm saying if they wanted to, they could afford to. I don't know if that's true. There's the famous story about uh, the company that first published Lord of the Rings, where the son of the OC came to his father and told him, I got this manuscript, and I think it's a masterpiece, but it's probably not going to sell anything. And his father told him, well, if it's a masterpiece, you can afford to lose some money. For a masterpiece, you can afford it. And Marvel just don't want to afford it. They don't want to pay to anything that might in the future be be considered great or sell well in a trade paperback. That's proving my point exactly. They cannot afford to let these books go on indefinitely. They choose not to. I don't know if that's true. If that were possible, I have to believe that the bad press that they're getting is... I mean, again, Marvel clearly don't care about public reactions. But the fact that someone like Bendis or idiots like Dan Slott can go on Twitter and point the finger Mm. at anyone other than themselves, really for a failed product, is indicative of... It's not just a problem with Marvel itself. It's a problem with the readership. Another inaccuracy, but that's not really it. You know, Terror was talking about how this is a sort of phenomenon you only see in the comics industry. Like in any other market, if a company was blaming you, the consumer, for a product failing, you'd be like, what the hell are you talking about? Now, Terror clearly doesn't know the video game industry. Yeah, yeah. Because there is some abused spouse mentality going on over there that would make even comics pale by comparison. But it's the same sort of idea of regardless of the financial details, because we don't know what's going on with Marvel. We do have an inkling of the fact that Disney is clearly not interested in Marvel as a publishing arm. They're using them as a farm for intellectual properties, which is fine. That's probably why they bought them in the first place. Well, apparently they're doing some very good sales right now in book fairs and such with the more kitty-friendly books, like, again, Squirrel Girl. I'm sure, but do those books then become widely popular? And in fact, you, you brought up Raina Tegelmeyer last time. And Tell I mean, mind. is that not... Well, there you go, right? Well, Squirrel Girl obviously sells somewhere which is not the direct market in America because if you look at sales there, it's below the cancellation line for at least half a year now. So it sells somewhere. And they, like we said last month, they, they're publishing a graphic novel. And I assume it's all these book fairs and kids' libraries and such, which, good, that's the next generation. But in terms of the Marvel Universe, their core direct market books, yes, something is not just terribly it's off there. It's not just Marvel. Something was terribly off there for a long, long time. But you can't point at the reader. It shouldn't be done. You shouldn't point at the reader and say, it's your bad that this book was canceled, which is... Well, yeah, I didn't buy it, but why didn't I buy it? Because you failed to publicize it, because you drowned the market in terrible stuff, because you overcharged me on books. I, I might have read Nighthawk on a monthly basis if it was uh, two ninety nine. I might have. Even two ninety nine, Tom. 
I mean, look, see, this is like an example of the, the whole Stockholm syndrome thing. It's like we talk about two ninety nine like it's a normal price. Even that seems a little, well, you know, for 24 pages that you read typically in, in, in print, five yes. minutes. Digital should have gone down, I'd say. The fact that they've never adjusted prices for digital sales. The fact that, you know, we treat $3 as if it's sort of like the baseline, as if it's normal. For 24 pages of, you know, story that quite frankly, based on content, can take you five minutes to read. Add $2 to that, you get a Netflix account. Yep. Like, in terms of the amount of time you spend with the actual product, there is no scenario in which even the cheapest comics on the market are worth it. But the fact that Marvel, like, take that to another extent, and, like, on top of all of their nonsense, all of their shenanigans with variant covers and crossover events and events that are delayed, you know, Civil War Two just got delayed until the end of the year. And, you know, it like, the exact same scenario as Secret Wars, you remember. Secret Wars had to have an extra double-sized issue at the end because they didn't know how long it was going to go. When that is the level that you are operating at, don't you dare point your finger at the readers and say that it is our fault that you are failing. You're doing that job on your own. You are shooting yourself in the foot. We don't need to give you the bullets. Yeah, so, you know, shout out to Jude Terra for speaking truth to power is what I'll say on that. Shall we move on to award season? Award season, sure. The, the Harvey, Harvey Awards. Awards were announced, and as all listeners know, the awards were in a big, big doo-doo. Uh, in the nominee stages, Valiant basically drowned out the competition by block voting and such, which made the, you know, all the categories be like, oh, here's three Valiant books, here's four Valiant books, and here's one non-Valiant book. Yeah. And so when the winners were announced to our shock and awe, Valiant won nothing. Not one award. Now, I'm going to admit that I feel a little bad about this. Okay. I mean, yes, the fact that they swept every single category in the nominations was ridiculous, and I don't think anybody was fooled by that. But to not give them anything in recognition of their work seems like maybe a harsh punishment. Well, I don't, I don't know if it's punishment. It's just people voted for what they like, and what they like is best new series, Paper Girl, best inker, Klaus Jensen, best colorist, Laura Allred for Silver Surfer, uh, best online comic work, Battle Pug, best most promising new talent, Tom King. You know, these are the people you vote for. Yeah. Special award for humor in comics went to Jips Darsky. Shout out to E.K. Weaver, by the way, for the less than epic adventures of TJ and Amal. She got a best graphic album previously published, and I read that in web comic format. It's a fantastic story. I really should read this. I I heard great things about it. Oh, it is really, really good. Brian K. Vaughn, of of course, winning twice because he's Brian K. Vaughn. And if there's a comic award, Brian K. Vaughn is going to win it, including... I don't know, the non-Brian K. Vaughn Award. If there's, ever, <laughs> if there's ever an award, which is, which his, its all purview is, we do not give awards to Brian K. Vaughn. He'll win it anyway. He'll, he'll win something yeah. anyway. I mean, he sort of scooped up four awards here. Like, he got Best Writer. Saga got Best Continuing Series. Paper Girl got Best New Series. <laughs> and Fiona Staples got Best Artist, which isn't directly, like, due to him, no, but no, it's no, still, no, no, no. That's it's harsh. recognition for Saga. Yeah. Still well-deserved. It's for her amazing epic work on Saga, but yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I don't know. Is there a Brian K. Vaughn block? Uh the sin- the sinister stuff of the Brian K. Vaughn block. I don't know if I'm just seeing like conspiracy patterns or whatever, but it is weird to me that Valiant didn't win anything. Like, yes, Brian K. Vaughn and Laura Allred and Tom King and Chips Darsky are people who you say they won an award. It's like, of course they won an award. 
Of course they did. Like, these are people who are at the top of their game and deserve everything that they're getting. I don't know, like, nothing for Joshua Dissard, nothing for Jeff Lemire's working on Bloodshot, nothing. Ninja, it seems a bit no. weird. Uh, Jody Hauser didn't get anything for Faith. That seems a little... I don't know. It could have been a response to, like, the block voting. We don't know. And I think the people who won deservedly so, if yes. I were just looking at the awards and I'm saying, oh, yes, of course, this guy deserved to win this this award. But the problem is, if you look at the nomination, you were like, well, they weren't up against the best competition, were they? Yeah, that makes sense. Be- because it wasn't Saga against, you know, the best other four best continuing series. It was Saga against one of the other best continuing series and three stuff from Valiant that was right. might, might have been good, probably wasn't the best there is. Yeah, it, like there was no scenario where Saga was going to lose to a Valiant book, even the best Valiant book. That was never going to happen. Yeah, I think, you know, somebody behind the RV Awards should do a re-examination of how the voting process and the nomination process works. Because this just, it hurts the meaning of the award. Because as we've said when we talked about the nomination scandal... If I see even nominated for an Eisner, if I see that on a book, I'd be at least interested. Yeah. Not even a winner, just a, oh, this was nominated for a best graphic album new. Oh, interesting. I, I might take a look at that. If I see a nominated for a Harvey Award right now, I'll be like, oh, so this guy has a lot of friends in the industry, which doesn't mean it's a bad work, but it does mean that I, as the guy who follows, you know, comics that, my, that are nominated for awards, just doesn't care for the Harvey as something to buy, something to use as a recommendation guide. I guess that depends on the disparity between the nominations and the actual winners. Like, the fact that Valiant basically took over the nominations ultimately had very little or, like, no impact at all on the final winners. So... Well, yeah, but when you win against none of the best competition, you know, the win doesn't count as much. And Valiant makes good comics. You know, I like some of their work, some of their work I don't like, but it's fine. But... Imagine a different scenario. Imagine that Xenoscape had all the best friends in the industry. And you had Saga against Green Fairy Tales and Robin Hood with a Y and the Hot Adventures of Werewolf Grandma. Oh, God. Oh, God. Would you say that Saga's victory was in somewhat heroic or just, you know, oh, it won because it wasn't the crap one? I'll be honest with you. I don't think that I would care. On that level. Like, it would only matter to me in that situation if Saga lost. (laughs) Because that would tell me... No, because that would tell me that the system of evaluation by which these awards are conferred on books is faulty, right? Not because Saga is the most perfect book ever. There are books on the market today that could legitimately win over Saga. But if it were going up against, like, America's Breast Comics and lost, I would be like, okay, there's clearly something wrong with the voting system and with these awards and these awards are meaningless. The fact that the nominations get screwed over at the end of the day, I feel like, you know, when, when we go over the results and we're saying Laura Allred won a Harvey award, I'm like, yeah, that makes sense. Chip Zdarsky won a Harvey award. That makes sense to me. The, the fact that the competition may or may not have been like they weren't up against their real competitors, I think is just less, less of an issue. It really would only cause me to be suspicious if, you know, Chip Zarsky had lost to Rob Liefeld for special award in humor. <laughs> I don't I don't know. Do you mean intentional humor or unintentional humor? <laughs> you know, if you if you count by the number of clicks that old webpage, you know, the forty worst 
Rob Liefeld drawings <laughs> did contribute so much for internet humor that I'd say, yeah, why not? Because they're laughing at him, not with him. Does it, does it matter? I don't think that Chip Zdarsky is the butt of many jokes. No. I think it's more that we tend to laugh with him. Speaking of creators we like, James Tinian has signed exclusive with DC. As it were, comic book exclusive, which means he can still do all of his creator-owned work, he just doesn't do stuff for Marvel. This really only means that he won't work at Marvel, and he wasn't working for Marvel anyway, so I don't care. If this had interfered with his boom work, I'm pretty sure I would have burned Burbank to the ground. But, you know, if they want to sign him up because he's doing good work on... Um, Detective no, Comics. Detective Comics, and hopefully maybe there'll be other projects with Young Animal or something, I don't Did know. Did he actually ever work for Marvel? Did he publish anything via Marvel? Not that I've seen. I have not seen any indication that James Tinian ever wrote for Marvel. Uh, his boom work will continue apace. So that's really all I care about. Like, if they want to keep him around, fine. Give him some more money, give him some more creative control, and, you know, he deserves it, certainly. Uh, the following news are only of interest if you are A, British, B, half of a comic book podcast who's interested in the history of British comics, <laughs> so otherwise you might not care. Uh, 2000 Idea, via their head company, Rebellion Publishing, the video game company, has bought the right to republish and repackage many, many classic uh, British comic book strips from the 60s, the 70s. They're talking about stuff from the Action Magazine, Wizard and Chips, Battle, Tammy, and Roy of the Rovers, of course. Which, which I'm saying, of course, if you're not a soccer fan and a British comic fan, you have no idea who Roy of the Rovers is. I certainly don't. Yeah. It's amazing because when these news broke, everybody on my Twitter wall who's British was like, Oh my god, this is amazing! And everybody else was like, tumbleweed, you know, just... <laughs> Crickets nothing. chirping. It's really interesting to me how they probably paid a good penny for these because these were out of stock for years, so nobody wanted to publish them. And now they paid for them. How are they expecting to make money from these works that, A, in their best, are quite old-fashioned? There was a reason that when 2000 AD came up, it basically rolled over the entire old model of comics in British anthology and swept it away. And B, not of interest to anybody outside of the United Kingdom. Are there that many people who would pay good money for Roy of the Rovers hardcover? You know, I don't know. Like, it, I don't know how much they would have had to spend for a deal like this. It's possible that they are, you know, that there's some historical value to this material, even if it wasn't very good. Historical value? Certainly there is. It's a large chunk of a very vibrant comic scene that existed for decades and was impossible for people to read unless, you know, you want to pirate that stuff, which you shouldn't. It's wrong. I can see people being interested in that, to some extent. Yeah, I'm, I'm interested because I care about the history of British comics because I write about it, but other than that, for people outside of that, uh, you know, do you really want to read Hookjaw, which is what if Jaws was the hero of this movie? Actually, it's a great Hookjaw. <laughs> that sounds pretty cool, <laughs> like... It's like five five page chunks, and every time he just murders a whole bunch of people. While the one good human in, in the background is like, "Oh, if only humanity wasn't so cruel, he wouldn't have to kill somebody." And in the meanwhile, Hookjaw, who's a non-anthropomorphic, non-thinking, not talking chunk, just murders people, <laughs> you know, by the boatload, literally by a boatload every episode. I'll tell you what, like speaking here as someone who had never read 2000 AD until I was in my 20s, because like in the States, same here, we, same here. we had just never heard of it, right? 
looking back, when I was reading like the, the old material, I didn't know what any of this stuff was. And then you find something like Strontium Dog, which was really good. Or you find something like, well, Nikolai Dante, I guess, came a little later. Oh, no, Nikolai Dante is 21st century already. Yeah, so, you know, but, like, the, the old classics, like Zenith, uh, Zippy Courier, Slaughter Bowl, like, there were a lot of old stories there that were actually pretty good. Harry 20 on the High Rock, for example. Like, you know, a lot of, like, 80s and 90s early weird sci-fi Bad Company is a great example. Chopper. So, for me, reading these for the first time, like, I really enjoy them for the retro sense. It really did seem fun and interesting and different from what you were getting in the American market at the time. I would not have known that if I hadn't made the decision to be like, okay, there's this thing here that I know literally nothing about. Let's give it a shot. What's the worst that could happen, right? So if that same logic is the sort of thing that guides people to read admittedly out of date material, these old British comics, in the worst case, it turns out to be like some racist garbage and, you know, you put it down and that's the end of it. But I I can't fault the logic. You never know if there's some old school gem in there. That nobody talks about. Something's gonna shine. I'm really looking forward to see if they're printing Carlos Esquera old war comics before he became a 2008 general sci-fi artist. He did a lot of war comics like Major E and stuff like that, which I really want to read. Yeah, you never know. Like, there could be stuff in there that you would never have... I mean, even to this day, the biggest hits of 2008 are not widely known, right? They don't compete on any level with the big two or even with Image and the the smaller... In uh, America, in Britain, obviously. Oh, well, in Britain, obviously, it's different. But like in the American market specifically, they don't know Durham Red. They don't know Nikolai Dante. They don't know Skiz. They don't know Halo Jones. They don't know any of it. To the extent that they know these characters at all, it's probably only because so many of the writers from 2000 AD then came to the States and made a name for themselves. If you were working backwards through Morrison's bibliography, you would eventually reach Zenith, right? So that's the only level of discovery that there is. I say, go for it. You never know. If something good comes up, I will be glad to read it. Movie news? Movie news. So, Jeff Johns, Mm -hmm. in his new role as co-president, I guess, of DC Entertainment. He's president, but... He's an advisor to how the movies are going to run now. You just know that, like, his office door has a really, really long and officious title that nobody refers to him by. He's just Jeff. But anyway, he was talking about the upcoming Justice League film, and he claimed that there's a problem with the public perception of the DC Universe as being drab and dreary. And what he said was that this perception is factually incorrect, and (laughs) and that it's a place of, and I quote, hope and optimism. Now... Tom, I think that in terms of comics, Bart Allen's exploded kneecaps and the half-eaten remains of the Wonder Twins might have something to say about this alleged hope and optimism. And I was discussing this with a couple of DC fans, and they said, you know, oh, Mark Guggenheim did this, and this guy did that, and it wasn't actually all Johns. Let's remember that for the past decade or so, The tone of DC Comics has largely been determined by Jeff Johns. What was the name of that title they gave him before he was president? Chief Creative Officer or something? Yep. Okay. This is someone who has played a very large and central point in determining that the DC Universe would be drab and dreary. So for him to try and walk that back in the face of public criticism is disingenuous. Well, you remember we've talked about Rebirth. That was him pointing a wagging finger at Watchmen and saying... It's Watchmen's fault. 
No, it's yours. Alan Moore's to blame for all the darkness in comics. It, it's not me, the guy who rewrote Crisis on Infinite Earth to turn their hopeful Superman into a bad guy. Yeah. Let's all remember Superboy Prime punching the walls of reality because he didn't get what he wanted. Punching the head of Panthera, a character who at the time was one of the co-stars in the Teen Titans cartoon for kids. Sure. Hope and optimism. Hope folks. and optimism, right? The fact that to this day, I don't think Jeff Johns understands that in his metaphor, he is Superboy Prime and not the fanboy. Again, like Bendis, he's looking in the wrong direction when he's looking at failure. Because Johns characterizes Superboy Prime in Infinite Crisis as a character who is so caught up in ideas of the past that he wants everything to go back to the way that it used to be so that he can do it and he will determine how the things will be. And then, of course, you know, you're talking about the writer of this event. You're talking about the person who has been in the role of chief creative officer, the person who is directly responsible for DC being this grim, gritty, bloody, pseudo-realistic story world that no one finds an inch of magic or imagination or hope in. Don't run the land of Mordor and sell it like it's Willy Wonka's factory, <laughs> is the thing. You know, that that's what it is. Like, Jeff Johns is the last person on Earth who should be running that line. I can't help feeling like this is a follow-up to... You remember when we were talking about the Justice League trailer, we said, you know, how weird it is that Batman is making jokes all of a sudden, and that Ezra Miller is playing Barry Allen as, like, this adorable kid who needs friends, and like, oh, all of a sudden... Oh, I'm sorry, I thought he played Peter Parker, my bad. <laughs> well, there's that. Even beforehand, like, look back to the Bohemian Rhapsody trailer for Suicide Squad which ended up being completely unrepresentative of anything that happened in the movie. Yeah. But still, like, there is a very, very, very blatant attempt on Warner Brothers' part to try and backtrack. Mm. And I don't think that it's working because they keep repeating the same lines through different people. So one time it's Diane Nelson, one time it's DiDio, one time it's Jeff Johns, and they're always saying, no, DC is actually fun, and it's, it's like, going to be fun again. It's like again. when they were kids, somebody gave them the wrong dictionary definitions of hope and optimism. So in their child's dictionary, hope was the end of all things, and optimism was the death and destruction of many, many beautiful people. So when Jeff Johns hears, well, we got to make this more hopeful, he's like, so more murders? I don't think that that's it. I'll be honest with you. I think it's more that... There was a time when we, if you told me Jeff Johns is going to be a movie scriptwriter slash advisor to make things more optimistic, I would say, yeah, obviously. That time what? was the, Yeah, that time was the 1990s. I mean, look, who brought Hal Jordan back and made him the best lantern? Who brought Barry Allen back? Who went back to Crisis on Infinite Earths for story angles, right? It's yeah. Johns. I'm saying that's late 2000s Johns. Like yeah. I, said, I really like 1990s Jeff Johns. But 1990s Jeff yeah. Johns, yeah. much like 1980s Frank Miller, ain't around no more. <laughs> yep. But I think it's not that they have their definitions wrong. I think it might be more that DC and Warner Brothers, by extension, recognize that there is a problem here. Like, for him to say... First, he acknowledges that the public perception of DC is that it's this utterly joyless place. But then he says that perception is wrong. It's not wrong. The works that DC have been putting out in film have been utterly and completely a slog. Just dark. Everything is dark. I told you my fan theory, you know, this is all taking place on an earth where Final Night happened. There is no sunlight. Nobody knows anything anymore. And... They keep saying, we're going to make it fun again. We're going to make it energetic. We're going to be basically Marvel films, is what they're not saying. 
but what they're clearly thinking, right? Because all of this started, I'm pretty sure that like the rhetoric of these movies are going to be fun again started after Deadpool. That's when we started getting the trailers for Suicide Squad suggesting that it was going to be fun and wacky and energetic and all that. And that didn't take. And Deadpool was an R-rated fun. You know, Suicide Squad could have been that, probably should have been that, just wasn't that. Yeah, but that had nothing to do with the rating. There are moments in Deadpool that have nothing to do with, like, adult material that are still funny. You know, it's still a situation where you're sitting and watching the film and Ryan Reynolds is cracking jokes and you laugh. That did not happen in Suicide Squad. Nobody made a joke. The Joker didn't make a joke. They clearly understand that the audience is not reacting well to this endless, grim, gritty, dark, blue, gray, all of this nonsense. They're they're not responding the way that they want them to. But I don't think that they know how to get out of it without openly admitting, let's just do Marvel. Because we already have Marvel. We don't need you to do the same thing. Just find another way to do it. And I guess they just can't. Even... I would have said, maybe talk to Bruce Tim and Paul Dini, but then look at the killing joke, right? I'd rather not look at the killing joke. You really shouldn't. I'm just saying, like, you know, you want to talk about... Even Bruce Tim isn't in that mindset anymore of let's make this stuff fun, because the killing joke was anything but fun. They made it less fun than the graphic novel, which is an achievement in itself. Speaking of DC movies... Yeah. There's this guy called Joe Mengiliano. I think it's Manganiello. Manganiello, okay. Uh, he's going to be playing Deathstroke in a solo Batman movie. Yeah, it's Batfleck, right? Mm-hmm. Okay, so a couple of things. Let's admit openly, this guy's hot. Yeah, uh, I guess. Um, he's, a, he's a good-looking guy. Apparently, it's his second comic book movie. He was what was fl- his first? He, he was Flash Thompson in the Sam Raimi Spider-Man movies. Oh my god! For like, he was on screen for like five minutes, so you know it's not a surprise that you've forgotten. Wow, I I was not aware of that. Yeah, because now, so this is the thing that's tripping me up, and I think that you might be more familiar with Deathstroke than I am. Mm. Well, first of all, he looks a lot like Manu Bennett, who played Deathstroke on the CW's Arrow, which I haven't watched, but it's fine. They they have like very similar looks, um, but isn't Deathstroke supposed to be older? Like, upper 50s, lower 60s? White hair, gray sides. I was, like, thinking about it, and I don't remember ever seeing Deathstroke without gray hair. When they announced they were thinking about doing Deathstroke, I thought about the guy from Avatar. Uh, what's his name? The guy who was just now in the horror movie Don't Breathe? Uh, Colonel Quartridge? What What was the actor's name? I did not see James Cameron's Avatar. I uh, ju- just to a... do with that afternoon. The mentality behind the CW Stephen Lang, passing Stephen I- Lang. Ah, okay. He's an old guy, but he's like a big beef guy, you know? He, right. He's like 60, but he looks like he can punch a horse to death. At the time when the CW cast Manu Bennett as Deathstroke, I was like, okay, the CW never acknowledges people over 40. So it made sense at the time that, like, yes, Deathstroke would be roughly Oliver Queen's age, which makes no sense, but okay, fine, we'll go for it. Joe Manganiello, I don't think he's that much older. Well, he's like 36 or 7. He's not... He's not young, he's middle-aged. I guess. Like, I don't know a lot about him. I know that he was on True Blood and I never watched that show, but apparently he was naked on it a lot, which explains the exclamation points that followed his casting announcement. Mm. There were so many exclamation points, and I'll let them have it. You know, bon appetit. It's interesting to me the way DC had pushed and pushed Deathstroke as their biggest villain ever. 
Because at this point, he was in so many movies and TV shows. You know, he was the main yeah. villain in the Teen Titans TV show, which makes sense. He was originally a Teen right, Titans villain. Right, But then he, he was, was also a big figure in Young Justice, which he wasn't a big villain of. I don't think he was uh-huh. ever in a Young Justice. He was in Arrow, as you said. He was yes. never a Green Arrow villain before that. He was in the Batman animated movie, The Son of the Batman. Oh, I didn't know that. In the comic, he wasn't there. You know, the, in all of their recent... Punch him up video games, you know, your DC yes. Universe, Injustice, yes. Gods Unleashed, blah, blah, blah. He's yes, all, he does he's tend there. to turn up. So they basically pushed him as their main headline, you know, villain. I think right now he's getting more... He's the third most familiar villain after the Joker and Lex Luthor, and these characters have, you know, decades of exposure behind them. Why do you think that is? I, because he's easy to push, you know, because you, you can do him as a villain, but you can also do him as, like, cool, anti-hero mercenary. So it's easy to, like, if he becomes popular enough in the movie or whatever, you can then do a Deathstroke spinoff where, you know, he's the bad guy, but he kills off worse guys, so it's fine. But if they're pitting him against Batman, then clearly he's going to what? be shown up in this film. Oh, he's, he's going to get punched around, but oddly enough, they're probably not going to kill him. They, they'll let Batman kill so many people, but they won't let Batman kill this guy. I don't know, I guess, um, I mean, I, I was going to say, I guess we'll see, but I have no intention of seeing the next Batman movie, so... I'm not a big fan of the way Deathstroke has been overplayed in DC's comics over the last decade, but it it works for them, and... Well, they keep rebooting, so it's not really the same Deathstroke anyway. It, not to the level of, say, Harley Quinn, which was their biggest success over the last six or seven years, but yeah. definitely in terms of re- public recognition, Deathstroke has became has moved on from being, who's this guy, to, oh, it's Deathstroke. And Twitter gets all excited about somebody casting Deathstroke. Which, hey, you know, what works for them, I guess. Good luck to them. In one of the most baffling movie announcements ever, Fox, of all companies, has bought the right to do a movie about Stan Lee. About, uh, about the life of Stan Lee. And you're thinking, oh, it's an interesting story. Surely there's a lot to do. And then they've announced the concept. It's an action-adventure, Roger Moore, James Bond-like flick. (laughs) Recasting him as this, I don't know, semi-debonair, semi-creepy secret agent? Wasn't that the angle at the end of Big Hero 6? Well, yeah, but that was a gag. And they're actually making this into a movie now. Okay. Why... So, in spite of the endless controversies and all the stories about Jack Kirby or whatever, I'll admit that I have some sentimental affection for Stanley. As Graham from Wait What Podcast said, you know, so you're taking somebody from comic book history and making him into an action hero, and you're choosing Stanley when Jack Kirby, who was actually in the war, is right there. Well, that's just another. No, it's, it's like, I don't think it's that's like it. Stan washing. I... Like no. rewashing comic history and making everything Stanley focused. So I'm going to disagree there because if you are comparing the two in terms of what we know about their public persona, right? To the best of my memory, Jack Kirby was never like loud and expressive. By all accounts, he was like a very you know sedate, calm person. He was never very big on publicizing publicizing himself and. Personality-wise, he would have been perfect for a movie. Remember, this is the guy who, when mobsters came into the Marvel building, shaking them down for protection, he just, you know, punched the gangster in the face and told him to butt off. 
that that's the difference, I think. I think that Jack Kirby, you know, if you were fictionalizing him, you'd make him more of like the silent brawler type, the the guy who like talks with his fists. Stan Lee makes for, I think, an interesting protagonist in the sense that, like, his public persona was always about, you know, hey, Marvel, like, very energetic, jumping around, like, making all of this noise. Stanley is certainly interesting enough to be turned into a figure in a movie or a novel or what have you, but this idea of the him as an action hero is just... It's it really, ridiculous. No, it's just, just weird. It's just a bit of annoying because it continues this tradition that, as far as the grand public knows, Stanley is the only one who counts in Marvel history. I don't think that that's... And I predict no. it's going to bring even more blowback from the actual comic criticism side of people publishing more and more exposures about how Stanley's, you know, writing gigs were actually him just doing a one-page summary and then Steve Ditko or Jack no. Kirby doing all the breakdowns and plots and dialogues and what have you. It doesn't matter, though. This is the thing. Like, every time well, Stanley's name... Every time Stanley's name comes up in any kind of conversation, the first thing that the pundits do is bring up Jack Kirby. And it's like, look, even if you acknowledge that the partnership between the two, which produced all of these characters that are still around today, if it was 60-40 or 70-30, whatever. It's the same conversation that uh, Greg Capullo had with Kurt Busiek. You cannot discount and say that it was all one of them or that it was all the other. There was some kind of symbiotic partnership going on here and when we credit them for the works that they did we have to credit them both the main difference here though is that when somebody says they're making a movie about stan lee stan lee is still alive stan lee you know long after jack kirby died stan lee was still the public face of the company making all of these like you know big shows of uh, you know marvel and the merry marvel marching band yeah, and all but of this stuff that means that the actual interesting story of stan lee is going to be drowned out by another part of the Stanley publicity machine. It was just it like that matter, movie about uh, Public Enemy, which was produced and co-written by two of the members of Public Enemy. And lo and behold, they were the two uh, most well-represented characters in the movie, and the movie glossed over all of their bad side. But by definition, this is a work of fiction, Tom. They're describing Stan Lee as a Roger Moore, James Bond spy figure. Clearly, the whole point is just to poke a bit of fun at the character. The fictional projected externalized version of Stanley, the one that's on, you know But I don't think they're poking fun at him. He's not he's not gonna be mocked because he's co producing. He's gonna Why should he be mocked? He's gonna be lionized. And I don't think Stanley needs any more lionizing done in his name. Because if you want a good version of the Stanley story, you can read The Amazing Adventures of Cavalier and Clay, which was basically Stan and Jack with the serial numbers filed off. Yes, but it was the serial numbers filed off is the point. I'm just, like, I don't know. I, I guess I'm not seeing, like, the problem. It's annoying to me in the same way that every piece of historical revisionism is annoying. And even but if it's, it's not historical revisionism. No, no, no. Even if it's self-aware and a bit wink-wink, nudge-nudge, it's still there. Because if it wasn't meant to be historical revisionism, you wouldn't have used the Stanley name. That's not true. This is a film, again, like, you're talking about this like it's a documentary. It's a fictionalized version of Stan Lee running around having adventures. They put him in a video game, um, I forget which one. There's a video game where, it's a Spider-Man game, I think, where you can substitute Stan Lee for Spider-Man. So Stan Lee's swinging around but and, and making jokes. But you can't do it with Steve Ditko and... Steve Ditko doesn't want to. No, no, no. You, you know how thing, Steve Ditko is. Whenever you do that again and again, it becomes this matter of public perception that Stan Lee created Spider-Man, Stan Lee created Fantastic Four, Stan Lee created Thor, Stan Lee created the Avengers... And it's one more brick in the the burying of the career and historical importance of Jack Kirby and Steve Ditko. 
But if this were a historical documentary, I'd concede that point. The fact that they're just telling like a weird spy story with this person who, I mean, again, like you're saying that as if Steve Ditko and Jack Kirby had public personas on the level of Lee. They don't. Steve Ditko to this day is mostly known for being like some kind of Ayn Rand objectionist nightmare or, or whatever the hell his deal is. He's known as being that weirdo. He doesn't have a public persona of like, you know, everybody knows. But just, but Stanley created the public persona. And just because somebody right? created the persona doesn't mean that you, we should applaud as he's playing it for the hilt. That is the persona that's being used as a film subject though. If this film was announced separate from anything else that preceded it in the way that Stanley over publicized himself to a degree over the works of his cohorts at the time. Okay. But since in the context of the world in which we live in, in the context of Stanley being always acknowledged while many of the people he worked with are being either ignored or forgotten or even intentionally buried people that in real time as they as that history took place were often bullied by the company stanley was running and working for i'm sorry at this point i'm like dude come on stanley presenting him as this historical hero is just another kick in the nuts it's not historical though by definition, the fact that he's being played, like, they're playing his role here as basically a gag, right? Stan Lee, super spy. It's ridiculous. It's exactly the sort of, like, self-fictionalization that you would get in the comics all the time. You'd always have, like, Stan Lee popping up in the corner of some... There's that issue of Fantastic Four where they want to... Uh, Stan and Jack want to get into Susan Storm's wedding to Reed Richards, right? And they, they don't get a... They can't get in because they're like, you're not on the list. And they get turned away. So saying that's the way it always have been is not. No, is not, not, not that that's the way that it always has been. But rather, if you are looking to adopt a character, fictionalize them and put them in a story that's obviously a farce. Again, like what's Stanley going to do as a super spy, right? It's obviously a farce. It's obviously just like a, a joke. It's, it's like Return of the Cape Crusader. Nobody's going to be looking at it at face value and saying, oh, Adam West and Julie Newmar, blah, 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 blah. It's just something that is being put out for fun, right? For the sheer ridiculous factor of it. But all. for me, that fun is part of something bigger and darker. And that fun is going to ignore it and bury it. Just as it always does. That's what Stanley, and not even Stanley, because I don't know, you know, he's an old man now. He's Stanley's publicity's machine, which used him and reshuffled him and like recast him over and over again until he's not, he's not a man. He's not even a myth. He's, he's a just walking punchline to a degree. And that's sad to me. Not really. I mean, the people who are making him walking punchlines are the ones who are incapable of discussing Stan Lee on any level without bringing up Kirby and Ditko. And I'm like, Kirby's dead, Ditko's a recluse. That I know that that sounds cold, but that's the fact of the matter, right? Steve Ditko is not going to suddenly turn up and be like, I want to be the protagonist of a comic book about a guy who has like mystical powers. That's not going to happen. Is this movie going to acknowledge any of these things? No. Because- Why should it? It's not a, if this were a documentary about like the beginning of Marvel, then I'd be like, yes, you have to acknowledge that there were other people besides Stan Lee whose contributions were equally significant. The fact that he was the public persona changes nothing about the magnitude of the contributions that Kirby and Ditko and all of Lee's other collaborators at the time, Roy Thomas. Since there, nobody's going to do that. And you're not even going to acknowledge them in your jokey, actiony, send up, whatever. You basically end up with Kirby doesn't exist, with Ditko doesn't exist. Lee doesn't exist. It's a spy movie. 
None of this has anything to do with reality or history, right? You're taking the public persona of the huckster, right? The, 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 the Stan Lee showman, and you're turning him into a super spy. It's fiction on fiction on fiction. There's no, I don't understand why there has to be a need to acknowledge the historical context. People know who Stan Lee is at this point. That's the thing. I don't think people know who Stan Lee is. I think they know, no, what, they know. the image that was sold to them. No, 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 no. Tom, I, I have been at many, many Marvel movies over the last decade in which Stan Lee's cameo is always met with Yeah, applause. but that's, again, they I'm know saying that's is. not Stan Lee. That's the public image of Stan Lee, which is so divorced from reality. But in a fictional context, it can be divorced from reality. If this were a film that were fictionalizing, like Michael Chabon did, right? If it were fictionalizing the actual formation of Marvel Comics and what was going on in the 60s and 70s and how that all turned out, then yes, you would absolutely have to have Kirby and Ditko and everybody else present in the story. But if you are saying, again, it's like an extrapolation of that end credit scene in Big Hero 6, where I forget the character's name, but the kid uh, shows up and finds out that his dad, who is Stan Lee, is also an actual superhero. It is a gag, but it's a gag that works on the idea of this guy who has like, you know, this very distinctive voice and this very uh, energetic showman personality is being treated as a superhero. And in this film, he's being treated as a spy. It's not actually Stan Lee. The real Stan Lee, Lieber, whatever, you know, that guy is not a part of this film any more than Steve Ditko would be. It's just the way that, you know, it's an image that they're appropriating for a gag, a completely fictional film that, as far as I can tell, has nothing to do with actual comics. I mean, nothing that I've heard about the premise of this film or the synopsis of the plot suggested at any point that he's a spy, but he's actually also working on comics. I think they're really just taking that image of the same fictional version of Stan Lee that shows up in all of these cameos that people applaud for. They're taking that and they're making a movie out of it. Is that a good idea? I don't know. I don't think that I would be so quick it to... It sounds pretty terrible. It sounds superficial. And schlocky, but again, maybe that's the level that they're going for. You know, I, I get that the, the historical context keeps coming up over and over and over again, but when you're dealing with not Stan Lee the person, but Stan Lee the image, then you don't necessarily need to go into all of that again. Well, you don't need to. But as far as I'm concerned, when nobody goes into it in a big public way, in any medium whatsoever, the people bringing in Jack Kirby and Steve Ditko, People like me, for example, are part of a very small circle that usually, let's be fair, is not part of the public discourse. I guess we'll see it if we'll see it when it comes out. I'm curious. I it won't be worse than Fantastic Four movie. It can't be. Few things are. Shall we move on to actual comic reviews? Let's. Uh, shall we start with Doom Patrol? Sure thing. Uh, Doom Patrol number one, written by Gerard Way, with art by Nick Derringdon and colors by Tamara. Bonnevillain? That's a great name. That's like a Doom Patrol-esque name. It's literally Bond villain. (laughs) Almost. Uh, Publishing by DC Comics slash Young Animal imprint. This is the first Young Animal book imprint. Yes, it is. Uh, The story focuses on two EMTs, one Casey Brink and one Sam Reynolds, and they're very good at their job, especially Casey, who's a very reckless but very well-portrayed driver. Like, mm-hmm. she she never slows down, and she can always bring people on time to save their lives. 
but things are getting weird around them, especially when they get a new dispatcher named M, E-M, like Yes. And he sends them to a street corner for a street that doesn't really exist, where they both witness Cliff Steele, a.k.a. Robot Man, get hit by a truck and disassembling it to parts, and their world goes over the top and over the edge. Yes. So that's the plot, as it were. There's many, many odd things going on there in a very Doom Patrolish way. There's many asides and non-sequiturs, and there seems to be like this general big villain being set up, but not really clearly, which I guess is the intention. Who do you think is this villain? Because I saw the, no the corporation guys who aim oh, to them? enslave yeah. the street. Right. Okay, so here's the thing. Uh, what are your thoughts about Grant Morrison's and Doug Case, was it? He was the original artist? I think so, yeah. Yeah, on their version of Doom Patrol. I started out enjoying the run. Mm-hmm. Uh, that feeling did not last very long. Somewhere shortly after the Brotherhood of Dada storyline, I just stopped being able to understand what Morrison was doing. <laughs> like, he went really, really deep into the rabbit hole, and yeah. I just, like you said about Moore's Worse, like, when you go that deep, it's just, I don't care. I recognize that this can be brilliant and no one else has ever done it before and look at all these colors and these concepts yeah but it's almost like the other way around because Moore's work went too deep into intellectualization while more work went so deep into his own personal human feelings that it was sometimes hard to connect to other people because it was very much this is not even morrison's mind this is morrison's heart right the beaming things that he loves and care about the beautiful lights that he see in the darkness I think you're being a little generous, but then you know Morrison much better than I do. <laughs> no, yeah, we're good friends. Like, oh, hello, Mr. Morrison. <laughs> no, because like talking about like his internal strife and his personal history, I don't know anything about that. What I know is that like reading Doom Patrol, and I actually tried to reread it recently, uh, Morrison's run. It does at some point just completely go off the rails in terms of basic coherence. I th- I disagree. I really like Morrison's Doom Patrol, and the end of it was showing that he had a grand plan all along, which was pretty surprising, seeing all these weird stuff being connected at the end with what the Niles Calder, the chief, was planning out. I had tuned out by that point. Ah, okay, which is fine. But I'm saying it ends up being not necessarily comprehensible, but th- there was a big plot behind it, only it made sense within the terms of the story. Now, Doom Patrol number one, the young animal relaunch, is very much of the same thing, which is... If you like that Doom Patrol, you'll probably like this one. If you didn't, this would probably just make you baffled, right? I disagree. Oh, okay. <laughs> Surprise. Explain. You you like this? No, not in the least. Oh, but not for the reason okay. that you're saying. Oh, okay. <laughs> okay. I'm, I'm surprised. Explain. Extrapolate. I understand the desire, in theory to basically follow in Morrison's footsteps in this specific book, right? Because if Way's Doom Patrol was going to succeed at all, it had to hit the same ballpark area of Morrison's run. Because when you think about it, Morrison's run on Doom Patrol is the only Doom Patrol that anybody remembers. Like, there were other writers that came after oh, Morrison. Like half a dozen reboots and revamps, and nobody cares about them. Nobody cares. It never lasted. It never worked. So to the extent that Doom Patrol have fans at all, it's probably Morrison's Doom Patrol. I understand on that level Way's decision to be like, okay, we need to be weird and off-putting and bizarre in that way. Here's the problem, though. 
Doom Patrol number 19, which was Morrison's first issue, if you recall, introduces the characters, brings them together, and introduces the main threat for that arc. The series may have gone like completely beyond the pale into like Morrison's weird headspace, but it didn't start that way. It was very much a classic gave- superhero story with just all the oddness, the usual oddness the genre brings dialed up to 11, right? Exactly. It was like heroes versus villains, only here's all the odd things that we gotten used to, just brought back yeah. to the foreground instead of being in Explicitly the background. Explicitly so. Exactly. And that's why I say, like, you know, when I read Morrison's Doom Patrol, it's not that, you know, first issue and then to the garbage because I don't understand what's going on. It's like there is a point where you have, like, the the anti-creator and the, the Brotherhood of Dada, of course, right? Up until that point, everything is weird, yes, but it still makes some kind of basic sense. Like, the plot is something that you can actually follow. The Yankee Doodle Dandy stuff, I guess, w- would have been your end point. The beard hunt? No, I got it. Oh, the, like beard the beard hunt? What? The yeah. beard hunter was great. You know, I, I got to that point. I lost track, um, that storyline with Rhea. Oh. Where, like, she all of a sudden has, like, a third eye, and she's floating around. I, that was the point where it's like, look, I don't even know what's going on anymore. Like, uh, Let's just try and bring it back to this Doom Patrol. Way's problem here is that he is doing his first issue as if it's Morrison's 50th. None of the characters are introduced here, right? You have uh, Terry Nunn shows up. I don't know what her no, deal no, is. No, 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 no. Casey Brink and Sam Casey Reynolds Brink is introduced. introduced. Yes, she she's like the perky weird one, and he's like the serious minded grounded. Sure. One. Five pages in, you get us an aside to Cliff Steele in a city that may or may not be in a gyro. Yep. He blows it up, falls out of the sky. We have a reference to Denny the Street, right? Mm-hmm. Some homeless guy looking for Danny, and then uh, these aliens talking about Danny Burgers. The issue ends with this tower surrounded by clouds, a lion that's been hit by, like, arrows of light, and some guy in underwears and a cape bleeding blue with a brick saying, I'm sorry. None of that makes any kind of sense. There's no context for any of this. Well, you're supposed to be disoriented. I assume the big point is that Brink and Reynolds are thrust into a world that they don't understand. They're supposed to be our point of view characters, right? Reynolds isn't even part of this. He disappears after the first part, and then it's just Casey Brink, you know, dealing with Terry Nunn showing up at her apartment. Yeah, that's. I think that was the bad choice, because since she's our point-of-view character, but she's already presented as being somewhat disconnected from normal reality, and she has this story about something that happened to her boyfriend, was it, or a friend in high school? It's her roommate. Yeah, no, 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 her story that she tells about, you know, my roommate disappeared in the clouds of puffed feathers or something. Yeah. Which automatically makes her already part of the Doom Patrol's odd world. Which means that when we see her transforming or when we see her meeting their world, it's less of a shock to the reader than it should be since their point of view character is already out there, as it were. Yeah, but there's a difference between like her telling these stories and us having no way to know whether or not it's true. And the fact that she takes Terry blowing up her roommate and turning him into confetti or whatever at face value. At complete stride. Yeah. And then Terry's like, can I move in? And she's like, uh, I guess. I, I, I think the big problem is this. This shouldn't really have been written as a continuation of Morrison's story because it's so much indebted is it? to... Yes, it's, you know, you're bringing in Robot Man and Danny the Street, and you do the other side with, with the Chief. It's so much presented as a continuation of Morrison's story that I think it almost loses its way from the get-go. I don't think it's a bad issue. I'm very much interested 
in all of the weirdness that it presents because it presents it in a fun and funny way. The, the non sequitur with the chief just, you know, sitting there uh, playing. I don't know what he's doing. He plays like three pianos and then says something about a fly. That's funny to me. How is that funny? What's the joke? It's a non sequitur. The joke is that it's not connected to anything. It's a weirdness within weirdness. But it doesn't really work to me as anything other than the continuation of Morrison. And I don't need to read a continuation of Morrison because just like when we talked about Omega Man early, early in the podcast, that story was done. You know, when Morrison finished his Doom Patrol, he was finished. He made the statement. And when the story, the last story ended, it was the statement of Morrison on the Doom Patrol. The end. No, but that only works if you're looking at author runs as being modular. The fact of the matter is that literally the issue after Morrison left, Rachel Pollock took it over and ran for another 30 issues. Yeah, but does anybody care? I tried to read the Rachel Pollock run and I just couldn't care. And, and they, they aren't reprinted. Nobody talks in history about, oh, that great Rachel Pollock run or the great. I'm sure it has its fans. No, it has it. Everything has its fans. But, you know, even the post-Morrison Animal Man has its fans, but nobody talks about it. Is it even in print? Animal Man or Rachel Pollock's run? No, the post-Morrison Animal Man. I know I know that the Doom Patrol's post-Morrison run isn't in print. There's a reason they did a Grant Morrison omnibus and not a, and not a Rachel Pollock omnibus. I do know that it was uh, made digital, digitally available, but I don't well, think it's... Everything is made digital. But in nowadays. any event, like, the, the I don't know... It might be a direct sequel. Like the, the fact that Robot Man shows up like disoriented and no, stumbling Man out of an alley. Part of the team, but like when they're talking about Danny the Street, that's like a direct Morrison reference. Yeah, but then there's no Crazy Jane. There's no uh, Negative Man. There... Not yet. Well, no. I mean, uh, so the cover that I had with this issue had like the whole team. Uh, I had the <laughs> I had the peel away gyro cover, which is amazing, by the way. It's it, it's fun. I play I played with it. It's like. Oh, this cover is fascinating. <laughs> There's a variant cover. I'm not sure by who, but it, it has like the whole layout of the team. The only person that I recognize from Morrison's run is Robot Man. So again, that approach would make sense for Way to be like, let me do a new team. But at the same time, it's like my objection here isn't so much to the fact that he may or may not be continuing Morrison's story. It's the fact that even Morrison knew to start with you know, something relatively sane, like give your reader something to hold on to. I don't know what the plot of the story is. Who is this person who's like bleeding blue at the end of the issue? What does that have to do with anything that happened? You're saying non sequitur, but non sequitur basically covers everything in this issue besides Casey. No, no, the other parts for me are just big mystery setups. The problem is, as we've talked about before, you can't just end your first issue on a mystery and expect the readers to care about it. For no reason other than it's a mystery. What you should have done is you should have made, I guess, Casey and Sam more relatable and fun characters to be engaged with. Which, to be fair, I've read other reviews and other people seem to really like Casey Brinks. So maybe just... She's an ideal viewpoint character because on the one hand, she's grounded enough that she's not in the Doom Patrol milieu. So we can... She's a bit too, you know, a bit perky. Yeah, she's yeah, perky. It's like somebody looked at, uh, what's what's her name from New... Uh, Zoe Deschanel. Oh, yeah, and said, make this a main character. And I'm like, um, mm. I get, well, you know, it's a manic pixie dream girl. Thankfully, girl. she's not the girlfriend character. She's the main character. So that, yeah, that uproots much of the problems with that particular narrative choice. Unless she ends up dating Robot Man. I don't know. I don't think so. Uh, I, I would say this. The art is beautiful. It is. Darrington and B- Bonvillan are a great team. And this is, 
you know, this is uh, colorful and fun and very strike looking. And they're asked to illustrate a lot of stuff which is weird and not connected to anything, but they make it memorable and actually comprehensible because if this comic would have died in the hands of somebody who was just like, oh, it's incomprehensible, I should draw it incomprehensibly. This is not a book that you would give to Ashley Wood. No. <laughs> Hopefully give no books to Ashley Wood. Sorry, Ashley, I just don't like your art, you know. Or uh, what's the name of uh, Bacalo? You don't want to give this to Well, you don't, you don't want to give it to late Chris Bacalo. Early Chris Bacalo would have been perfect for this, actually, but, you know. I don't know. I was really, really troubled by Way's approach here. Um, I, I think if you like it, I understand why you like it, but myself, I'm not that invested in what you're selling. I'm willing to give it another issue just to see if something clearer emerges, but I'm going to say, like, right now, this is not off to a good start. And it kind of surprises me, to be honest, because, you know, comparatively speaking, I know that Way understands how to begin a story because Umbrella Academy was also weird as hell, but I could still sit here and tell you what the story was about. But on the other hand, Killjoys. Killjoys, I don't know what the deal was. Like, there was, it was based on something. It was based on his own concept album. But the story didn't make much sense. I only read the first issue. It was also the same thing. Beautiful art. Story that made no sense whatsoever. Yeah, it was just, here's a series of striking images, which is perfectly fine, but if we're not connected to these striking images via interesting characters or at least story, they're just striking images. Which is the same with uh, Doom Patrol. Yeah, from the both of us. You know, I'm the guy who likes, like, weirdness for weir- for weirdness sake. And I like my Dream Logic stories. But this one, it's okay, I guess. It's not, it's not terrible. And, you know, good for them for making it. For making something so different from anything else which is DC-based. But... Well, let's see how long it lasts. Well, yeah. Uh, I will say, like, side note. Way dedicated the first Young Animal editorial to Shelley Bond. Which was a sweet gesture, if slightly off-putting, because for all practical intents, he's the one who replaced her. <laughs> Not intentionally on his part, but like that's sort of how it shook out, right? Young Animal meant that Shelley Bond got the post. But, you know, it's a nice gesture. It does acknowledge that people like Karen Berger and Shelley Bond built the foundation on which Young Animal wants to ascend. I understand that. I do think that it might be a little self-congratulatory to be calling yourself the new Vertigo when you clearly haven't quite grasped what it was that made the early Vertigo books work. Like, the thing that a lot of people today don't understand is that you can have dream logic and you can have weirdness for weirdness sake. But if you don't ground that in some reason for your readers to come back for more, it's the difference between, I don't know, what would be like the weirdest thing? It's the difference between Grant Morrison's work and something like that Ray Fox book that we're always mm-hmm. down on, Intersect. It's even Enigma, which was probably the weirdest of the weird at the time. Oh, yeah. It was grounded in in human emotion, right? In this, uh, in this love. I can sit now and, ex- and like, tell you, if, if you ask me to, like, recount what Enigma was about, I can do it. Like, I can tell you, you know, this guy did this and this and this and this happened. And, yes, that book was weird as hell. Many parts of it don't make sense. There was a villain who looked like an envelope. The, the Interior League who terrorized people by moving their all of their furniture slightly to the left. Yeah, you know, like, it, these things are absolutely bizarre, but they're still coherent. Can you do the same for this issue? Yeah, I can narrate images. I don't think I can narrate story. Yet. There's no through line. Now, like I said, I... 
I, I don't like it. I'm willing to, like, on the strength of Wei's reputation, I'm willing to give it one more issue. But I, you know that I am out of patience for this nonsense. On the strength of his previous work and on the strength of the art team, which, again, does amazing work, I'm going to give it at least two more issues. That's fair. I mean, we should also note that this is not holding the line at two ninety nine. If I'm not mistaken, this book is three ninety nine. My copy is three ninety nine. Well, it's holding no line. It's untethered from reality. It's not a line. It's more of a curve. Shall we move on to image? Moving on, let's talk about Eclipse Number One. This is by Zach Kaplan and Giovanni Timpano from Image. Image slash Top Cow. Oh, is it Top Cow? Yeah. Oh, I didn't notice that. Oh, good for them that they're still in the business. So, a solar flare has increased the sun's impact on Earth, driving humanity underground. Billions have died, but the survivors are now living uh, underneath the cities. There is a contingent of teenagers who like to go up to the surface and party basically at noon, like, you know, risking their lives, etc., including the mayor's daughter. In the midst of all this, we find out that there's a serial killer who is stalking people and using the sun as the murder weapon. Mm. And very cleverly so, I should say. Uh, there's one scene involving a truck with mirrors in it, which is probably the best scene of the issue. <laughs> Wasn't that brilliant? Yeah, my big, pro- my big problem with this issue is the following. You remember Snowfall? We reviewed the first issue. It pretty much isn't that just pretty much snowfall with the sun replacing cold weather. No, there's one central difference here that I think is actually the reason why I didn't care for snowfall, and I do like this, which is that in snowfall, the protagonist of the story is the one who is the exceptional person, right? Like the one who is not affected by the transformation that has driven everyone else to adapt to, like, a new way of life, right? They're the special one. Here, the serial killer is the one who is somehow unaffected by the sun's radiation, and the protagonist of the story is this uh, burnt-out cop with a dark past, right? For me, that's it's such a generic trope, because I'm imagining him in the movie version already, and every line is like this. Sure. In my past, I was a cop, but here I'm just a... Sun guy or whatever the name is. I'm not is. dismissing that. I, I, I completely agree that the setup, at least initially, seems to be somewhat generic. But the fact that the emphasis now is on taking the exceptional individual and making him the antagonist makes a difference to me. Because now it's like, okay, there's this guy who can wander the surface of the earth and not be affected by the same radiation that forces people to wear like these gigantic Iceman suits in order to survive. So here the mystery is more about who is that person, and we don't have access to that person. Whereas in Snowfall, it's like, okay, it's the narrator. Like, we know who it is. I'm in two minds about it, because there's a lot to like about this issue, especially in the set pieces, but the main characters and the story itself are so generic. It's like, find a way to make a post-apocalyptic setting, and okay, now it's the sun, and in Undertow it was water, and in Snowfall it was snow... And the world that they're describing is doesn't feel very well thought out. It's, it's thought out, but it's not really, as it were, over the surface level of, okay, what's going to happen? Kids are going to do stupid things, and there's going to be, like, proto-spacesuits for people to walk in on the sun. Yeah. Well, they haven't gone into detail as to what this underground society is like, right? They're, we don't know. We get, like, glimpses of how these people are living and the fact that they can come up to the surface at night... 
I'd say that most of the heavy lifting is done by uh, Giovanni Timpano, who... Oh, yes. Really, uh, a lot of it is very much near quietly work, I'd say, especially the scene with the truck, which we mentioned over again. And there's also, it's sort of refreshing that, you know, Timpano depicts the deserted city, but it's not in ruins. No, it's just deserted. <clears throat> yeah, which is creepier, I think. Yeah, and the the scene where we are introduced to the main, I guess he'd be the bad guy, but who knows, is, you know, is creepy as hell. Yeah. And he's he really is, for me, the top reason to read it. And I like the way in the final page where we can see our hero and the mayor's daughter, you know, in the mirror, yep. shaking in fear. Or even the scene before it where all of her bodyguards are like, trying to protect her from the sun and are burned to a crisp. Yeah, and like she survived because she's buried under a mound of people who died to protect her. It's a very striking image. Yeah, and I'd say I like the art. I like some of the ideas, but overall it's just too generic for me. It's almost the opposite of Duper War, where it does everything it does very well, but I just don't care about what it does. I just can't. See, my, my interest here is in the fact that they make a specific... Like, they draw attention to the fact that the serial killer is not running around stabbing people. Mm -hmm. He is using all of these tricks and traps to essentially weaponize the sun. Even from the solicitation text, that was something that they had stressed, right? That the whole angle here is that you are running from a killer who does not wield a conventional weapon, but rather will use mirrors and, like, holes in the sky or whatever to use the sun to kill you. That was the, the hook for me. And I do think that the first issue delivers on that. Like you pointed out the, the scene with the truck that just drives up to the front of the building with a whole bunch of mirrors attached and flash fries everyone. It's a very striking scene. If that's the level that Kaplan is working with here, I am interested. This guy is running around sabotaging water pipes and doing all of these things to get the sun to kill people. He doesn't kill them himself. Yep. That's something that I find potentially interesting. Mm, a bit sawish to me. Fair enough. There aren't that many stories about, like, you know, serial killers who are actually intelligent enough to do the whole saw trap I'd thing. say there are too many stories where serial killers are presented as smart, super capable individuals. image individual. comics? No, in our culture in general. If I don't see another smart serial killer story for the next ten years, I've seen too many already. Well, listen, I mean, in popular culture in general, everything has been done. So, like, there'd be nothing to look forward to. I'm thinking more like in, in image terms, like if they want to do a story about a death trap serial killer. Wasn't the one we reviewed, like, Demonic had a serial killer in it also? Demonic? No. Demonic was about a cop who was, like, possessed Yeah, but wasn't one of the villains a serial killer? I don't remember. I, I can't. We reviewed it, like, two weeks ago. Like, what happened in this story? Was it a story? Did we actually review that? Do we exist? Demonic? What? Which really says all it needs to about oh, the... Oh, Nailbiter. <laughs> Nailbiter has so many serious smart serial killers in it. Oh, I never read Nailbiter. It's about a whole town full with serial killers. Your image comic-based serial killer need is fulfilled only by Nailbiter. I'll pass. I don't, I, uh, Nailbiter is Williamson, right? No, but I remember, like, the reason that I don't read Nailbiter was because just, like, the description seemed extremely gruesome, and I wasn't in the mood. It, it does seem, like, very, very graphic, and I'm... It, it's a fun story, but yeah, it is very graphic. Yeah, so, like, yeah, I'm not really, I mean, I, I'm not squeamish or anything, but it's just like, eh, I don't feel like it. Shall we move on to Glitter Bomb? Yes, next image book. On the next image comic, uh, Glitter Bomb <laughs> number one, 
written by Jim Zub with art by Jibril Morissette Fan and coloring by K. Michael Russell. And the story is about uh, this lady called Farah Drunette, who's a middle-aged actress hunting for her next big gig in an industry where if you're a woman over 30, you know, you're not wanted. You, you could be the mom in the supporting role, but that's it. And her problems come to a head when she does a little uh, drop drop in the water and wakes up with something very different about her. Yes. Now, it's one of those stories that start with uh, the big incident and then, like, pulls back. And ever since Kieran Gillen had a bit of a... I think it was a Tumblr go-through at that trope. I'm like, yeah, you're right. It is overused. Gillen should talk. He did that on Young Avengers all Well, the yeah, he did it and he said... Oh, I should have stopped doing that a long time ago, right? Uh-huh. What? <laughs> Admitting your own past mistakes is fine. Not when you keep doing them. So anyway, we start with the big thing of her sitting in an office with an agent. Yeah, it's her agent. And she does something very Cthulhu-esque to him, and then we're like, pull back and see how she got there. Now, the interesting thing to me here was, did you find, based on the description, we know that she's been taken over by some kind of demon, right? Not taken over as much as, you know, it inhabits her body. It's like a parasite. Yeah, like, it, it seems to have bonded with her. Mm-hmm. Now, this demon, though, has a very, very specific animus. It doesn't like Hollywood. Because everything that it says, like, you know, uh, famous people, celebrities, it kills her agent for saying that she, because of her age, she can't give 12-year-old boys boners. Mm-hmm. which is the kind of despicable thing that I can absolutely see a Hollywood agent saying. Yep. So my question to you is, do you find the demon sympathetic? Well, we don't know about its grand plans or anything, but yeah, the sympathy is definitely with her and therefore with the monster that inhabits her body. I found that so interesting. <laughs> I mean, I understand, like, Jim Zub was openly talking about how... Wait, on the other end, there's this homeless guy, you know, that's not sympathetic. Who steals her purse? Well, there's stealing your purse punishment and there's being murdered punishment and they're not the same. And she doesn't kill him because he's Hollywood, that's for sure. Well, he does have the map to the star things. Yeah, that's the thing. Like, he idolizes famous people. It seems to me, based on everything that the demon does and also, like, what it tells Farah, this is someone, this creature, whatever it is, has a very distinct problem with... Celebrity, the concept of celebrity. Well, that's the concept of the comic, right? It's not just a woman being inhabited by demon. It's specifically an older woman and older just in Hollywood terms uh, facing all the dark impulses of the industry by basically becoming a monster herself. A literal monster versus a metaphorical monster. And punishing them, though. That's the key, because she does kill her agent for that comment. Yeah, but if I'd say if the series is... We don't know from the first issue. If the series is only going to be... You know, glory in the punishment of Hollywood is going to get real old real fast, right? Because, okay, karmic back pay again and again and again. You can't do it forever, right? Well, I'm assuming that, I mean, first of all, Jim Zub knows how to vary things up at some point. Like, it's never just the same premise all the way through. Fair is fair, yeah. Yeah, I mean, even Skull Kickers, which had, like, the most generic setup to the extent that the characters weren't even named, at some point it did change its premise. Yeah, yeah, right. You know, so, like, I feel like he he knows that. I have to say, like, I'm really interested. It reminded me, it's sort of the opposite effect that I had with Citizen Jack. Because when we were reading Citizen Jack, the character of Marlon Spike, like, the demon that was pushing Jack to be president, wasn't... Did we actually review Citizen Jack? Yeah, we reviewed the first issue. Did we? 
It might have been me and Chagai. I, th- I think it was you and Chagai, yeah, because really, I, I seriously don't remember that. <laughs> okay. I so... did walk into, into the water recently and woke up on the beach covered in blood, so I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> What secrets are you hiding in your past? Ryan Bendis. Uh... Oh, no. Sorry, sorry. Now, see, if someone were running around punishing the comic book industry, that would be a book that I'd really be behind because uh, Ted McKeever's pencil head did not do it for me. But um, when we were talking about Citizen Jack and Marlon's bag and the idea of, like, the demon as a figure who is supposedly benevolent in that he wants Jack to be president, but at the same time, he wasn't very sympathetic. This creature is, like... Uh, you know, screw the people who tell you that you're useless because you're over a certain age and you're a single mom or whatever. Like the, the dark impulses that it has are aligned against sort of not necessarily a bigger evil, because as far as I know, Hollywood doesn't literally murder people. Well, not in, not in the 21st century. It's easy to hate Hollywood, right? It's easy to hate. Yeah. Well, listen, I mean, to hate them justifiably. So we know that Hollywood has some very, very abusive, systems in place that to this day are still working, right? Nobody comes out of Hollywood unscathed. Everybody comes out of there with like mental problems, drug addictions, whatever. So the idea of Zub using this story to sort of like punish the people who usually get away with it, right? Like if she goes after Roman Polanski in the next issue, that would be fantastic. Well, Roman Polanski is not Hollywood's. Woody Allen then. Yeah. Uh, okay, but like I said, if it's just cathartic release, it's not very deep. Uh, the question is, is it going to go deeper? I'm definitely sticking around with this. Uh, because here's the thing. The end, the end slash beginning of the issue are pretty much, as I've said, it's the big, oh, here's here for the mystery. I'm. Are you connected to that character? Farah? Yeah. I am, absolutely. I'll admit that, like, part of that might be that, uh, Zub is using the same trick that Felipe Smith used in All New Ghost Rider, which is, I'm pretty sure that Farrah's kid is autistic, and that that's being used, you know, like the same way with, uh, Gabriel Reyes. Yeah. That it, it's sort of like a shorthand for instant sympathy with this cute, adorable kid. Who, you bought, you bought into it. Uh, yeah. So, but, but, no, but I also, like, I can sympathize with Farrah because of the scene, like, Immediately, like the first chronological scene of the story is her sitting at the casting uh, department, right? Yeah. Where she's having this conversation with an actress who's 10 years younger than her, talking about how the only part that they can get is as the bitch. And, you know, Farah is trying to be like, well, maybe she's bitchy. Because, like, she's trying to get into the character's head. But the character that she's going to get hired to act hopefully doesn't have any character, right? It's just a shallow image that men create. Exactly. So I do sort of feel for her in terms of, you know, this is someone who is being wronged by the system and is now empowered to take action. Although obviously, like, the fact that, uh, and I have to give credit to Morris Fan on this, the fact that this demon entity, whatever it is, is very clearly Cthulhu-esque. Like, there are tentacles, there are concealed pincers, there's a lot of Lovecraft going on over here, so obviously we're not meant to assume that this entity is benevolent, right? There is something darker going under the surface here. And that, in combination with the fact that, like, I I can identify, well, not necessarily identify, but, like, I can understand Farrah's plight does keep me invested. Now, the Morissette fan art was actually the problem for me because it wasn't weird enough. It's like pleasantly... 
I don't want to say generic, but it's very pleasantly image-looking comic, as it were. I think that was the point. Well, yeah, and for instance, I'm not sure if it's supposed to be a point that uh, Farah, despite being 10 years older than the, all the other actresses in the room, actually looks almost exactly like them. It's not like she... Botox. It's not like that she she looks older. She's just older on her ID. So I'm not sure if it's supposed to be a point of literally they don't care about you once you reach a certain age. Tom, have you seen Jude Law lately? Nope. Have you seen Winona Ryder? Yes. There's your answer, isn't it? There are actors who, who don't age, whether or not it's cosmetics. I don't know. Like, is it real or is it evil? Yeah, but again, the other thing is that because it's so pleasant looking and normal looking... The actual horror moments don't really work for me. It's I just wait. Uh, what about like when she kills the the homeless man? Her face splits open. It's not scary to me. And you know, okay, we've talked about how most horror comics aren't really scary, but it's not even that surprising or interesting moment of darkness because we've seen that image before. We've Have seen, we? We've, we've seen the Cthulhu image before. We've read. Sure. We've, we've both read Weird Detective just recently. But I don't think this is supposed to be a horror story. It, isn't it? It's about supposed to be about the horror of the system, right? And I don't feel her oppression by the system being very clearly carried by the art. I feel it's being carried by the writing here. And it's not... Yeah. The art is not bad, but it's just... I feel like it should have been more out there. This is the one where you do need... You need somebody a bit more out there. Or at least for the horror moments, which for me should have been a gear shift, but just felt like another part of the story. Maybe it's intentional. Maybe it literally is like, oh, you know, she's murders people just as a just as Hollywood does. But I'm not sure about it yet. Well, she is. I mean, to be fair, she is pretty horrified by what the demon is doing. It's clear that it's acting on its own accord, right? She did not go to her agent with the intention of killing him. She was sitting there. He said something like, um, I, I forget like the exact dialogue, but he says like, you know, uh, you're old and uh, you don't give the boys wood. So like you're not sexy enough and there's nothing that we can do to you. What do you bring to the table? What do you bring to the table? And the demon responds by killing him. And he's like, that's what I bring to the table. I don't know. I liked it. I think that Zub does have a larger plan beyond. I assume so because it's Zub. It's like when you're following the Kill Bill format of killing the people who've wronged you, eventually you reach the end of the list. I think there might be something else here. But on the strength of the first issue, I am willing to stick with it and see where it goes. I think it's one of those wait for the collection for me to see if it reads better in trade. Because the first issue was okay, but nothing out of the ordinary for me. It's fair. Uh, shall we move on to our not trade review? Not this time, no. Although it will be a trade shortly. The Kickstarter ended actually today. Oh. And it will be going to print. So, Sean, since you chose this one, introduce it. Yes, we will be discussing Anagalactic. This is a webcomic by Christopher Baldwin. Google it, it's free, it's online. Uh, Baldwin is a webcomic creator that I am very fond of. He's known for writing excellent space opera science fiction that typically goes in very dark and bleak, unexpected endings. I was initially introduced to his work through this epic webcomic, Space Trawler, which I highly recommend. He also has two other works that I've read, One Way, that I'm less fond of, and Yantengu, which was this alien superhero story that went to some pretty unexpected places. Anagalactic is his latest webcomic. Yeah, and this is complete, by the way. The Yeah, the, stor- the story is done. 
Yeah, it's 250 pages, uh, or strips, I suppose. Yeah, some of them are multiple pages, so... The the premise is that uh, a human starship, the Mary Celeste, has landed on an alien planet. The crew and the passengers have sealed themselves in because they don't know anything about the alien world. But they're running low on resources and may soon be forced to move into the planet. Yeah, they, they'll have to colonize it simply because they have no way to leave. Yes, And we're introduced to a woman named Foxglove, who is curious and has been illegally sneaking out of the ship in order to explore the surrounding areas. We also have uh, the titular Anna, who does not initially appear to be the protagonist. She's a musician with low self-esteem who gets sort of roped into this adventure. She's 18-year-old, and she was basically over-parented, as it were. Her parents are very nice, but you get the sense that she wasn't given... A room to grow out of, which makes sense because they're stuck on a spaceship. And largely, uh, I think we can also put some blame on Pewter, the nanny bot, who's one of the highlights of this. She, she has a nanny bot and she's 18. You know, you make the math. And the nanny bot is funny as hell, but also very um, sort of like passive aggressively critical of her. He's like, oh, are you really going to wear that today? It's like that friend, you know, the one that like chips away at your self-esteem by saying... And uh, the three of them, along with one of the ship's security officers, that's his role? Teapot. He's yeah. a member of the uh, of the ship's crew. That's not his actual name. That's a nickname, but I've forgotten his actual name totally. His actual name is Delvin, but like it, the reason that it's... Everybody calls him Teapot. Yeah, the, the funny thing is that like everybody calls him Teapot, despite the fact that he seems to be a war hero. Like, we don't get much of his backstory, but what we do get is, like... He was a soldier. Yeah, he was a soldier. He fought in something called the Gravel War because humanity has been at war with multiple alien species in the past. So he is now only known as Teapot, which he finds very frustrating and I find hilarious. Okay, now... And they go out into the planet. Mm -hmm. They encounter all sorts of weird stuff while being convinced that they're helping to thwart a conspiracy aboard a spaceship. Yeah, Foxglove is convinced that there's, like, the captain is acting very strangely, that there is something wrong with the ship. And having been outside, she knows that the world is not toxic. Like, if humanity wanted to colonize this planet, they could have by now. But they're not calling for help, they're not doing anything, so there is sort of a mystery at work here. Okay, so this story has an ending, which we will not spoil, but which is very much, uh, changes everything that you thought about the story kind of ending? Yes. And it is a point of criticism that we'll get to, because there's something to to say about that. Now, uh, this is my first full-length introduction to Christopher Baldwin. I tried to read Space Trawler, and I thought it was fine, but it reached my point of... I'm spending so much time in front of the computer, I literally can't read comics on it anymore. I need to, you know, disengage. You need an iPad. Uh, No, because it's just another screen. I need actual physical pages because otherwise I'm like, oh, I'm in front of the computer again. My head might break. I I even stopped reading Order of the Stick. You know, I never have that problem. That's weird. Uh, We're different kinds, you and I. I guess. Uh, There is a lot to recommend about this comics, but there are problems with it. Yes. Uh, What's interesting to me is that it felt, the story felt to me a lot like the way we, you once described to me, the works of John Scalzi, and you said, it's science fiction where he acknowledges, yes, we all know all the old tropes, so let's just, and but we're not going to subvert them or break them, we're just going to say, well, yeah, you know that, let's move on to the interesting character stuff. There's no attempt to explain, you know, why humanity spread to the stars, 
and why there was a cosmic war. It's just like, yes, well, that's, it's a science fiction story. Obviously, there are spaceships and cosmic wars. Let's get over with it. Let's move on. I think that that's legitimate in terms of, like, if you're a sci-fi fan, and this is actually something that Scalzi's talked about. Like, you know, when, when you say to a sci-fi fan, FTL, right? Yeah. Faster than light. You don't need to explain to them what that means. Like, it, it is intertextual in that sense. It's like there are certain things that you can, as a fan of the genre, you just learn to, like, take it on faith. Yeah, the negative side of that is that approach very much uproots all the sense of wonder and amazement that the genre used to have, where it's like, oh, yeah, you know, it's a space war. We just we just mowed a couple million people in space. I'm sort of on and off on Scalzi. I like some of his books very much, yeah, and others I- I'm just like... Oh, really? It's, oh, it's exactly what I expected. You didn't surprise me at all. With Scalzi specifically, that's true. I think that, like, more broadly speaking, when other writers do that, I don't know if that's necessarily a negative. Because, like, for example, in this story specifically, we do have these sort of references to a backstory of, like, there's this war, blah, 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 blah. But the, the wonder and the exploration is not about that. It's about this planet that they're on. Yeah. So it's like it, I think it's more. It's not that it dismisses the sense of wonder; it just shifts it. Like the, the if you look at like the old, uh, you know, like Shatner's Star Trek, the wonder was never about specific worlds because like you go to this world, you visit it, it's weird, you leave, then you go to the next world, right? Mm-hmm. Here it's more like you have one setting. They're not going to go on that ship, take off, and land on another planet and do the whole thing over again. They're stuck on this world. And it's the world itself that you are exploring and seeing all of these weird things. What I did like here is the character work. And it's very nice the way he slowly, you know, strip by strip sort of pulls back all the layers of these characters. Because Foxglove and Teapot's romance, which is very much this classical, you know, I hate you, you're stupid, you're stupid, and then they kiss at the end, which should not work. By all rights, that trope should be dead and buried a thousand years over. It works here. It really does. We learn to meet these characters and we learn how they function, what they think, and their emotions to one another were exposed very, very slowly. Not in a 90 minutes movie, you know, oh, you're, you're just an annoying warrior and you're just an annoying anarchist and then they kiss yeah. at the end. No, uh, Baldwin has an excellent sense of pace. Mm-hmm. Like, this strip ran for, like, exactly 250 strips. And you can tell very clearly, except for one point that we'll, we'll discuss later, like, the, the ending, everything is very slowly parceled out and properly parceled out. Like, when you get to the revelation of Foxglove's secret, like, uh, the, the thing in her past that's making her guilty, it's a huge reveal. But it makes sense. It's not just overdramatic for the sense of overdramatic. Yeah, Like, it makes perfect sense in terms of what she's been doing up until now. And even Anna Galactic's, you know, character arc, which started weird to me because she's, like, she's 18. Why does she act so, you know, like a 12-year-old girl who's never seen the world? But, oh, yeah, she literally is. She (laughs) hasn't. She never had the chance. And her low self-esteem is not from not being good at stuff, but just from not having any chance to express it, Right. And it's not because her parents are evil. Nobody's just evil for the sake of evil here. Even the people you think are evil yeah. turn out not to be. It's very weird to me because it looks like I remember webcomic looked in the early 2000s where I was just getting into them. There's a bit of flatness to the world and the characters. Not in the design sense, but just in the way that he draws. It's very much simple. You know, here's one character on the background. Here's two characters on the background. There's never any attempt to break that mold most of the time. 
which right. is something that most web comics moved on from. But on the other hand, unlike these early web comics, it's very much planned out. It's not just a here's what come to my mind today. This is a story that with a beginning, middle, and end, and you can see at the end how all the hints sort of collapse into something that works. And I think the old school art style might also contribute to like on a thematic level because it is sort of like an old school science fiction alien world, alien well, landscape but it's, it's kind of story. Two different types of old school, right? Because old school science fiction art is nothing like. Old school, and by old school we mean again early two thousands webcomic art. I'm just I know his style seems to uh, his being um, Baldwin style seems to work more on actually the small parts where he flashes to his real life, the comedy segments where he hangs out at the end of the trip and like explaining this is what I'm doing right now. These were actually much more appealing to me artistically than the science fiction stuff simply because his style. Really. Simply because his style seems to be more set towards this type of story. Uh, there's all these commercials to his Penguin book, like his young adult uh, Penguin novel, which seems actually pretty fun, and I want to read that. And the art is not bad, but it's never it never seems to overdo itself. There's never any moment where I'm like, oh, this is an amazing look, because there's this part near the end where they're fighting this giant monster whose name I cannot pronounce... The Kathok. Yeah, and Anna saying, oh, this is this beautiful creature that I might need to kill. And I'm like, is it beautiful? She literally says, it's this beautiful, magnificent creature. And I'm like, it just looks like a red bird that was rejected from a Mega Man villain lineup. Yeah, but she's never seen anything like it. Like, you have to remember who's saying it here. It's not Fox Club who says it's beautiful. The grandest that she's describing doesn't come through via the art. It comes through via the words of the character. It's a minor criticism because the storytelling is good enough and the character work is good enough. Uh, it's just that, you know, sometimes it aims for a destination they can't yet reach artistically. Could be. Let me ask you this. What did you think of the ending? Because it's sort of a thing. It's a thing with Baldwin. I'm not sure. It's, it really felt a bit too much like, oh, I'm going to surprise you. In TV tropes, it would be known as the Shaggy Dog story. It turns out that everything Anna Fox this and is a spoiler. Do, We're in spoiler. No, no, no I'm, I'm not going to like oh, explicitly okay. spoiler, but but I will say that it's characteristic of Baldwin's work because this was the same thing in uh, One Way. It was the same thing in Yantengu. It was not the same in Space Trawler, so there might have been some kind of shift. But you sort of find out that the entire story is a red herring because it, it was all pointless. Like they were all striving for a goal that was never what they thought it was. Um, yeah, that annoyed me at first, but when the strip kept going, yeah, and they were like, well, it was meaningless on plot terms, it was meaningless on the character terms, and I'm like, oh, I'm interested again. Exactly. I'm like, oh, you've actually turned your weakness into strength. That's actually pretty impressive. And I think that that's a direct response to what ha- the reception of One Way, because One Way was also, it was a story about a bunch of uh, astronauts who get on a ship and are flying towards an alien signal. And uh, they reach the alien signal, and then you find out that it's not what they thought it was, and then like the story just ends right there. So you do sense of like, oh well, the, the whole story was pointless. Oh well. Here you're absolutely right. Like there is that epilogue at the end, and the fact I think it's interesting that it ends with Anna because it doesn't start with Anna. Like th- despite the fact that the strip is named after her, you would be hard pressed to argue that. Anna is a more active protagonist than Fox Club. It, well, her, she has the most science fiction-y name, right? Anna Galactic sounds like a science fiction comics. Fox Club sounds like a Morrison character. It sounds like a Victorian Yeah, it sounds like a spy. 
And, you know, she's this conspiracy nut who has, like, this backstory and all that stuff. Um, but I just, I really enjoyed it. Um, the ending, I think, like, my only problem is that the, the quote-unquote truth is revealed in, like, one speech. On one strip. The captain of the ship is like, well, you should know that. Boom. There it is, right? And it's sort of like a structural weakness, because I'm like, if you're going to do that, maybe foreshadow it somehow. Maybe do something to, like, build it up, because it's sort of like... It sort of invalidates the way, you know, the suspicious way the crew behaved in the first trip is because A, B, and C, but we didn't know A, B, and C, right? Yeah, and it's, it turns into, like, an error of communication. It was like, well, if you knew that that was the case, why didn't you just tell her? She would have stopped. Like, you know, Foxglove would not have tried to break out of the ship and run out, run amok on the planet if you had just told her the truth. Why was it a big secret? It's like, it, it doesn't really seem convincing, but that's like a minor glitch. The, the thing that I love most about this series, I think, is, I don't know if you're familiar with uh, Peter Watts. Yeah, yeah. So the thing about this is they encounter all of these alien species. With one exception, they are completely unable to communicate with them. There's a scene, uh, I think, like midway through where they bump into this lone alien who sits down in front of them, offers them food. They offer food back. It may be smiling. It might not be smiling. It gets up and it walks away. What was the meaning of that? You have no idea. Because it's actually alien. It's not just a human in a dress. They're alien in the truest sense of the word. And so many of the assumptions that the three protagonists make are dependent entirely on human preconceptions of, like, what would aliens do. And part of the story is them realizing that they don't know what's going on. And they were thinking in human terms on something very much unhuman. The whole stab crab scene, and really like the fact that I can say the stab crab scene. The stab crab, the stabby crabby. The stab crab scene should be the name of an alt-rock band, right? <laughs> but that is exactly it. Or when they're talking about, um, like, the only alien that they can communicate with is malevolent. Explicitly so. But also, one of the things that Teapot says is, like, why should we assume that they're all like this alien? Humans aren't all the same. Why should we make that assumption about other species? And you do find out in a limited way because they're only, they can't talk to these people. But like when the crabs are fighting other crabs, like they just stare at this fight and they have no idea what's going on. And yeah, why not? People fight other people all the time. Yeah. I really enjoyed that. It's atypical of, you know, popular culture science fiction. It's the sort of thing that you would have to grow up steeped in the genre to say, okay, Let's question like one of the most fundamental things, right? The whole idea of communication with alien species. What if you couldn't do that? How would your understanding change? How would your ability to navigate the story change? And usually when you do the can't communicate, present the, like Peter Watts, sort of a horror story of, oh, we can't understand this terrible thing. It's like, no, we can't understand them because they're different. But it doesn't, it doesn't make them monsters, just make them into something that you can't understand. The closest thing that I can think of in terms of an analogy is there's this uh, episode of Star Trek The Next Generation that everybody talks about where they encounter an alien species that only speak in metaphors of their own culture. I forget the name. Children of something. When you talk to them, they will repeat phrases that are directly related to their own mythology. But because you don't know their mythology, you don't actually understand what any of them are saying. It's like if I were to say to you, if you had never seen the Alien films and I said to you, uh, Ripley standing over the fire, you would have no idea what I was saying. Yeah. 
But even then, it's like the obstacle there is that they're still speaking English. So like you have some kind of starting point. Anna Galactic takes that further, right? Baldwin is saying, okay, what if not only can you not communicate on any level with these alien species, you're making assumptions about their motivations that might not be true. What do you do then? What actions can you take? And that that's just fascinating. That's like, it's a way of thinking about the conventions of science fiction that more writers should do. Yeah, overall, I'd say Balding's work is very impressive in the way that he thinks things through. And yeah, a lot of it does rely on conventions, as we've said, but it doesn't just uses them again and again. It finds an interesting twist on the convention, at least. Yeah. He recently announced that his next project is going to be Space Trawler 2. Oh. Which I am really looking forward to, because I love those characters so much. But yeah, you know, th- this webcomic is free. If you Google Anagalactic, yep. you can find it right now. Yeah, I, I have my small criticism. I'd say sometimes the pacing's off. Uh, yep. The art, like I said, isn't amazing. It's very workmanlike, but it's up for the task of the story, as it were. Exactly. And the story is good, and the characters are good. Absolutely. It's a self-contained, complete work. Mm-hmm. Which is always an advantage with webcomics specifically. Like I was talking to someone a couple of days ago about Homestuck, which is a webcomic that many people praise, but has been going on for, I think, at least a decade. And just like the sheer quantity can turn you off. There are webcomics that I would recommend to readers, but I know that if you were to start reading Order of the Stick now, there's a thousand and fifty something strips. Yeah, and many of them are multiple pages. So it's like 2000 pages of story. And it doesn't seem to be anywhere near completion right well it seems to be heading towards like the end arc but because the artist is so slow that could take years and because he always changes what you thought the end arc is going to be yeah it's like oh god could you just end it already (laughs) no although i am still enjoying it i have to say like when he does when order of the stick changes direction it's always an interesting direction the broader problem with i say problem in quotation marks right the the accessibility issue with webcomics is when you stumble onto something that is really long and really, you know, has been going on for years and years and years and years, it's really difficult to get into it. The big problem I'd say with webcomic overall is the fact that the editor is not there, right? You're creating your own work and you tend to seemingly create an echo chamber around yourself of people saying, this is great, this is great. Well, sometimes that works. I mean, there are creative voices out there that don't necessarily need an editor. Certainly, but the problem is that when you don't have somebody telling you this is where the story should end, you can go on forever, even though the story really cries for, you know, a cut. We've seen it with many acclaimed comic creators as when they become famous enough and the editor stop having any power over them, they go on their own merry road and their stories suffer for it instead of flourishing. I'll tell you what the thing is. Like, on the one hand, you're absolutely right. Like, there is value in knowing when to stop. On the other hand, when we're talking about, like, mainstream writers and mainstream creators, we're talking about people whose, the the works that they're working on are long-lived, not because of any organic storytelling reason, but because they're franchises, right? The X-Men or Superman is never going to reach an end point where the story should have stopped. But when you look at something like... No, no, I'm talking about something completely different. I'm actually talking about people who became famous on superheroes and then get a crack at self-publishing, uh, self-owned creator work. And are like, well, nobody's going to tell me what to do. I can do whatever I want. And then you get 60 to 70% of Avatar's press releases, right? Oh, God. The blood, no, but... the slaughter. I don't have any limitations. I can do what I want. No, 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 no. 
you shouldn't do what you want. You should do what some people tell you is good or bad sometimes. I don't know if that's true because like, think about it. You, you mentioned Avatar, but Avatar also has a house style. The fact that people cut loose there and go completely banana news is fine, but it also means that other comics nevertheless tend to look like gory, bloody mess. Well, that's because they have house artists, but the writers are different from one another. And yet they all tend to do like the same kind of story. Like the difference with webcomics is that when you're looking at it in terms of it's true that there's no editor, but there's also no franchise. There's also no publisher to dictate house style. And granted, sometimes these stories can go on far past their expiration date. That is absolutely true. But you can also sometimes get situations where the lack of intervention means that the story itself can evolve in organic ways. I mean, even, you know, we brought it up as an example. Even The Order of the Stick is currently telling this epic fantasy story. It didn't start that way. When it started out, it was just like a gag-a-day webcomic about uh, Dungeons & Dragons, where they were, like, the, the writer was poking fun at conventions of tabletop role-playing games. About 100 or 200 strips in, it very gradually became this epic fantasy quest to save the world and you know you had this army siege and you had all of this stuff going on the gags were still there but the story went in the direction that i don't think anyone could have foresaw that is interesting from the perspective of just someone who is used to literature being set and defined and having certain preconceptions here you have a scenario where the creature itself the story itself given however long it takes, can evolve in ways that are unforeseeable and sometimes really bad, <laughs> but sometimes really good. Agreed. I mean, have you ever read Starslip Crisis? Nope. Starslip Crisis is like a perfect example of this as it starts as, you know, a science fiction comedy story about a ship that's also a museum and the captain is a anal retentive curator type. Mm-hmm. By the end of the webcomic, you're dealing with like a galaxy-consuming world ship that's coming to destroy humanity, and this crew is the last hope, and it's played straight. So that kind of organic evolution can be really interesting to see. It doesn't always produce good stories, but it's a different model, I think, than somebody being like, I'm going to go to Avatar, and because I can do whatever I want, it's all going to be titties and gore. Just titties and gore as far as the eye can see. 20 pages titties, 2 pages gore. <laughs> Or maybe 20 pages gore, 2 pages titties, depending on no, how No, no, 20 pages titties, 2 pages gore, Xenoscape. Please do not, <laughs> do not confuse publishing companies. Yeah, but it's like, it's a different sense because when those authors think they're rebelling, oh, you know what? I'm going to paraphrase a line from Stranger Things because it was perfect. It's like, when these creators think they're rebelling, what they're actually doing is doing what everybody else does. People who go to write Cross or whatever and think that they are being bold and brave by bucking mainstream trends and having like people tear each other apart and intestines flying everywhere. It's like, yeah, but every other writer who came before you did that too. You know, like the act of rebelling itself has become sort of like mainstream at this point. Well, it became mainstream years ago, but this is a different topic, I'd say. Webcomics are at least free from that in that there's no mainstream to rebel against. There is a mainstream of webcomic, right? For a long, long time, it was the two gamers on the couch type story, which everybody copied from Penny Arcade. I mean, Penny Arcade, I think, is still to this day a gag a day. It was never like, as far as I know, it's not like a narrative webcomic. It's not something like um, 
Narbonic. Yeah, no, there isn't a mainstream company, but there is a mainstream like appeal and look and story style. And when you have something that's very different, it's usually pushed to the side. It's funny that something like Six Billion Demons is probably going to get more famous from the print edition than for its webcomics origins, right? Well, I, I think in that specific case, like when you're talking about, I mean, it's the same for Nimona, right? Who knew about Nimona when it was being published as a webcomic? When it made it to print, all of a sudden everyone was like, oh, oh it used to be a webcomic. The problem with webcomics is just that, you know, it's like fan fiction. The sheer quantity makes it almost impossible for you to know in advance what's good and what's not. Like, there are, there are names that I could throw at you now of webcomics that I've read that I thought were fantastic, but you would never have heard of them because, you know, how would you know? Yep. When they make the transition to print, at the very least, I'm like, okay, you can read the uh, print collection of, oh, hell, you could read the print collection of, of Anagalactic and then go back and when you find out that it is, first of all, it's online for free. Second of all, when you go to Christopher Baldwin's website, there are links to his other comics. So, like, that's how you draw attention, I think. Like, you go, you see these things in print, you pick them up off the shelf, and if you want to, you can follow that back to the web. If you start from the web, you can just get lost. Hell, Giant Days is a perfect example. When we reviewed Giant Days for the first time, we were talking about John Allison, but Giant Days is part of a much larger universe that he was working in that we know nothing about, because if Boom were not publishing Giant Days, you wouldn't know about Scary Go Round and Bobbins and all of the ones that came afterwards. Giant Days is self-contained, but it is still part of a larger body of work. There's some merit to it, I think. Yeah, yeah, certainly. I think we're going to have to finish now, because this podcast is going way, <laughs> way over the top, even for us. In Absolutely, terms of but I, I strongly recommend uh, Christopher Baldwin's work. He's an excellent webcomic writer. Unconventional in terms of its endings, but that's part of the charm, I think. Yeah, so this was the Smorgasbord, episode... 51. If you liked, 51. if you liked it, previous episodes can be found at seekboard.org. Again, the best online source for comic books, news, reviews, previews, and critiques. Buy their books, read their articles, watch their movies. I'm Tom Shapira, and if you like my voice for some reason, you can read my words on the Twitter at Tom Shops. I'm Sean Edry. I have no social media whatsoever, <laughs> but you know. You're on the Facebook. I am on Facebook, but who goes to Facebook for conversation? Do you have a MySpace page? I do not. <laughs> I didn't have a MySpace page when MySpace was popular. Uh, well, we'll open one for you. Until next time. Bon appetit.